Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, a self-sovereignty consultancy whose services are tailored to the high-income furry segment of the market. I'll apologise in advance for the huskiness of my voice during this episode. Turns out I'd COVID and was having a bit of a hard time breathing. This will be the first of a two-part series on The Sovereign Individual, in part because we had a lot to say about this book, and a single episode would have been long. But also, technical difficulties intervened when our internet connections both shat themselves during recording. Anyway, if you thought the internet was only good for arguing with strangers online about today's designated corporate outrage news story, or for bending your mind with increasingly more obscure forms of pornography, then guess what? You're only partly right. James Dale Davidson and Lord William Rees Mogg published The Sovereign Individual, the subject of today's episode, in 1997. Beloved by Bitcoin maxis the world over, this book details the effects of the information revolution on society. The collapse of nation-states, the rise of an extra-national class of fully self-sovereign individuals backed up by the power of autonomous weapon systems and cyber warfare, wealth living in cyberspace and able to evade the grasp of bandit governments, a global free market and security services providing the services previously reserved for welfare states for a fraction of the cost, customer-centric post-citizenship, the mind reels at what lies before us. Now that the subject of making money has been brought up, we've got a Patreon. If you like what we're doing, currency is the most valuable compliment you could give. We've also got a Discord server, the link to which will be in the show notes. Levi is putting together an app to complement this podcast, which I'm sure he'll try to sell you at some point, and I'm preparing to self-publish a novel, which I will soon try to sell you. There are exciting times ahead. So, if you feel ready to scream, taxation is theft at the next public employee you see on the street, then listen on. Enjoy. We are here to talk about the end of the motherfucking nation state. Yeah, bitch. Um, it was fun reading it too because so many of the things they say in this book I recognise because you've said them to me. <laughs> just like how much it's informed my thought. <laughs> yeah, the the one two combo, the one two combo is read this and then read Snow Crash by William Gibson. That's no, the Snow Crash combo. is um that's Neil Stevenson. Yeah, sorry, not William Gibson. Yeah, sorry, Neil Stevenson. I said that with so much conviction as well. <laughs> yeah, you were very confident. Um, I, 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 I was like a myself. chat GPT, chat GPT, just uh, confidently hallucinating bullshit. <laughs> is Snow? I read Snow Crash ages ago. Is Snow Crash Snow the one Crash, where one of the characters is this guy who drives around in a motorbike with a hydrogen bomb? Yeah, strapped to him. Yeah, yeah. And in they the, can't kill him because otherwise yeah, yeah, he'll blow yeah. up the city. In tow. Yeah, so the issue, in fact, they actually call them the sobs, if you remember. <laughs> that class of people, he's one of the sobs, as in the sovereigns, the self-sovereigns, that have their own, <laughs> that have their own, their own, like, jurisdictional treaties. <laughs> it's so fucking good. So cyberpunk. <laughs> How about, can you give listeners a brief overview of what the sovereign individual is? Yeah, so I mean, from the name of the book, base. I'm sure they can, to an extent, guess what it's going to be about. But Okay, so imagine... imagine give them a little bit. The, the love child of Peter Thiel and Michael Saylor just comes in giga-chad jaw, massive galaxy brain, fucking 12-inch dick, and has zero dollars in fiat currency and a trillion dollars <laughs> of Bitcoin and, like... A thousand tons of gold somewhere in like a Swiss vault, 
and that person can just like stroll into Monaco or El Salvador and they don't have to abide by the plebeian plebeian bullshit rules that apply to everybody else. They can negotiate their own goddamn tax treaty, their own protection treaty with the sovereign nation state or whatever, or the city state that they're, um, that they're residing in. And because they're so hyper giga chad fucking mega 1% of the 1% of the 1% of the 1% hyper productive, um, they have all these bots and shit like ruling the world for them. They're so economically productive. They can just like, pay for all this shit, basically enter into tax treaties and whatever um, for themselves. And so they are sovereign. They're like economically self-sovereign. And that sort of giga-chad, mega hyper-capitalist um, is enabled by the internet, essentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the, the internet just like just puts all of the shit in capitalism, like zero marginal cost replication and economies of scale and network effects, just puts that shit into hyperdrive. <laughs> and so essentially the premise of this book is the people who figure out how to take advantage of that tool set will Build essentially achieve, achieve uh, self-sovereignty, i.e. sovereign individuals. And even if you don't achieve the platonic ideal of being able to like negotiate your own tax treaty with a nation state you can asymptotically approach that platonic ideal by basically um donating to our patreon donating to our patreon and subscribing <laughs> to the the financial newsletter advertised at the end of this book which yeah, was yeah, written yeah. by the book's two authors <laughs> it yeah, is a common thing quite a few of the books we've covered for this podcast are actually just parts of a sales pitch. funnel but whatever the authors are shilling yeah, so in that would case, apply to sovereignty services. Sovereignty services. <laughs> There's this fucking dickhead on YouTube. He's he's called the um, the is he he's called the rogue capitalist or something like that or the um. I'll see if I can find his name, but he's just he's this guy who just like he's such a douchebag, and he just read this book and just got it into his head that he's going to be like the YouTube sensation that's going to like be the influencer for this community of people trying to become sovereign. Oh, he's going to bring the sovereign individual to the masses. <laughs> and whilst it's interesting because he's like, oh yeah, if you move to this part of the world, they've got like this treatment of taxes or some crap like that. And it's like, that's probably very useful information, but also like you seem like an insufferable private school boy. <laughs> no, if it was, <laughs> Jack and I are both insufferable private school boys, but so, you know, I can throw shade when I want <laughs> that cast of people. <laughs> You're allowed to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I enjoyed this book a lot. Can't say yeah, I. Jack sent me a message like two weeks ago. Like agree. this book is blowing my mind, man. <laughs> I was like, yes, yeah. This is so. This is a really good book. It's it's it was published in 1997, and quite early on in the book, both authors say that they're going to make a number of quite concrete predictions, and they understand that they could well be wrong with their concrete predictions, but they want to do it. They don't want to be Nostradamus figures where they make. Predictions that are so vague that it's vague. hard to disprove them, but that they also have no predictive value and are not going to be of any use. You've got to give them credit like for that. that. Yeah, I give them credit for that. And I think they're probably still directionally right. I think they got the timing wrong. I think what they could have done to make their predictions more concrete would be to put numbers on the timing. Um, but Oh, they did. They had things like, oh, in 2020, yeah, by the 2020s, this is going to be happening. by the 2020s. And I think that's, like, fine. Like, they got they basically got the timing wrong, but I think, like, a lot of their things are basically starting to 
come to fruition. I yeah, I think directionally they've got a lot of things right. They didn't foresee, I think, the extent to which the Chinese Communist Party could control the internet within China. Yeah, well, they didn't really foresee just the incredible economic explosion in the 2000s of China. Yeah. And they did, they did foresee AI because they talk about having digital servants and things like that, which but, can increase the productivity of a sovereign individual by, by huge factors. Infinite. Really. But they also like, didn't foresee <laughs> that those digital servants could be used by centralised powers to further centralise their power or to control economies, to control citizens or subjects, things like that. And a really interesting note is that, oh, is my screen turning off? No, better make sure that it doesn't do that again. Um, a really interesting thing at the beginning of the book is that uh, in our version of it, um, Peter Till gives a preface and basically... Because of course he does. He's, because of Peter he's not only it's legally happened. obliged, but ontologically obliged to write the preface <laughs> to the sovereign individual. <laughs> <laughs> like he just can't it's just it's, it's pre, predetermined it. <laughs> <laughs> um so like uh essentially um till says this at the beginning of the book it's really interesting it's had a huge impact on his on his thinking um and it's also had a huge like if you look up Naval Ravikant, he's a really important Silicon Valley investor. Um, Balaji Srinivasan, he's a really important crypto dude and investor. Um, like it's it's a book that has had a really big impact on their thinking, and there's probably plenty of other Silicon Valley types who have read this book and it's impacted their thinking as well. Um, and essentially, like Peter Thiel even highlights that one of the things that they underestimated was the centralizing power of um, basically big data and applied machine learning. Um, yeah, super interesting. So I guess what we'll yeah, do is... It's, we'll, it's a, quite an influential book. Or I would, it's influential among people in groups which are very influential. I don't know how much mainstream penetration the sovereign well, individual has. The, I guess that's on point with their thesis. That's like, well, if you only influence like 1% of people or 0.1% of people, but those 0.1% of people manage like multi-billion dollar hedge funds in Silicon Valley, then like yes. <laughs> that's probably yeah. a decent set of people to influence. <laughs> And also, actually, back to what you were saying about how they underestimated the centralizing power of big data and AI and that sort of thing. I think then countering that is, I think they also underestimated the decentralizing power of digital currencies. Because they, in 97, mm. a full 10 years before the Bitcoin white paper, was Bitcoin white paper 07? January 3rd, 2009, baby. 09, okay. So, oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, yeah. even yeah, Genesis even Day. Further before it. So yep. they predicted fully digital currencies, but they still talked about how there'd be digital banks and things like that. So they still saw, foresaw that there would be these central institutions online. They would just be in cyberspace and so not subject Which to, I think is going. to coercion by nation states. So I think they actually underestimated the decentralizing capacity of cryptocurrencies. Which, to be, to, not to be fair, but I, I guess like the complication of like any book is you're trying to compress 
basically the complexity of a global multi-billion person socioeconomic system into like a thousand pages or whatever. Like you're just not going to be able to get the resolution. Oh yeah. On that sort of explanatory compression. And I'm not saying like, this against them. I'm saying it. No, more, no, no, it's not. Well, they, what they did is very impressive. They foresaw a lot of trends and I think got the direction right. So the, the very fact that I'm nitpicking with this and saying, oh, well, yeah, they got the trend right. They just got the magnitude a bit wrong is a backhanded compliment. So fucking impressive. But I'm, so I'm also guess- saying it in that while, while they underestimated the centralizing power of big data, they underestimated the, centralized, the decentralizing power of cryptocurrencies Crypto. or how digital currencies came to be instantiated. And... Which, and they didn't foresee. Which means that their, their, their thesis, it's not a perfect mathematics of, oh, well, you've got a centralizing thing plus a decentralizing thing, so it balances out the same. But it means that the direction that the world is going in is probably actually going to end up being fairly similar to what they set out in this book. It's really weird. It's going to get weird. This century is going to get even weirder. So Our lifetimes are going to be very strange. I'm it's fairly be- confident making that prediction. This is going to be a very weird time to be alive. So, you know, okay, so, um, okay, so I've got, actually, I'll just say, I'll just respond to that directly now. On the assumption that uh, techno-scientific and uh, cult, uh, well, I'll say techno-scientific progress and then I'll say cultural change because I'm not sure to what degree a culture can prog- progress, but it can definitely change. I guess that's an interesting conversation. But like techno-scientific and cultural and institutional change, assuming that that keeps on accelerating, which over the last like 500 years or so, it's been accelerating a lot or it's been changing a lot and it seems to be accelerating. It means that going forward in time, Jack, for the same sort of um, like nominal amount of time, into the future is actually um, a greater amount of what would you say like the there's a greater density like time density of change into the future which means that like say yeah over the course of our lifetime in 50 years time the world will be di- more different in 50 years from us now than it was 50 years ago from us today if that makes sense. I don't yeah. know if I explain myself very well, <laughs> which is a really yeah, I, weird I think thing to think about. Because like. 50 years ago was 1973. They'd just gone off the gold standard and the internet didn't exist yet. Yeah, uh, just a different world. And Chief Keef wasn't dropping bombs on Chief Twitter. Keef didn't exist. Chief most Keef impo- didn't exist. The most important Isn't cultural force of the 21st century hadn't been <laughs> it's born. It's just unbelievable that there was a world without Chief Keef. <laughs> we didn't know That's the things that I Chief Keef like. didn't like and which the, the things that he enumerated as disliking. <laughs> had not been the world of disliked things by Chief Keef had not yet we been. We didn't know which things Chief Keef yeah. didn't like and we were culturally much poorer for it. De-pegging from gold, I don't like. Floating currencies, I don't <laughs> yeah. like. The entirety of that song is actually just about how he doesn't like going off the gold standard. It's just, it's phrased in a number of metaphors which make the meaning slightly <laughs> yeah, yeah. unclear. But it is actually about going off the gold standard <laughs> and how he doesn't like, like it. Just like some shoes he doesn't like. Like, I can't remember the particular pair of shoes he doesn't like. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> fucking oh, good. It's good to see that we've already gotten so off track that we're just talking about Chief Keith <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead of hyper-techno-libertarianism. Oh, my God, I fucking love this book. <laughs> so what we're going to do for the show, guys, now that we're 20 minutes into recording or whatever, is... Uh, we're going to approach this because it's a very complex book and we do encourage, well, sorry, I shouldn't say we, I won't speak on your behalf. I encourage everybody to go and read this book because I actually think it'll help yeah, you deal I'd, with it. I'd recommend like, this book. This is a, with it's understanding. It's a good book. Sorry. Yeah. No, so I was just going to say like, you're probably not going to agree with everything reading it and I didn't, but no. it's going to make you think. And as we've said a few times, I think they've got the direction of the future right. So it's always helpful, like, okay, there's a lot of change going on and there's going to be more change. And all our listeners out there, like, there's a lot of opportunities um, to, like, do cool things. And also, like, you, also from a more, like, negative carrot in the stick, there's also, you know, you want to be abreast of, like, things that could disrupt, like, what you're doing in your life, whether it's professionally or otherwise. And there's a few books that I've found that have basically helped me like set up a mental framework to like basically I think navigate my life and career in the 21st century. One of which is this book. Even if I don't agree with necessarily all the details, I think that like it gives you like uh, a lot of really useful um, sort of ways of thinking about what's happening in the world. So we're going to um, – <clears throat> approach this book because it's such a big and dense book we're going to like basically say try to answer the question like what's sort of the main problem they're trying to solve and in particular how are they trying to solve that problem with regards to the past so his historically the present so in 1997 and i suppose the early 21st century um like what that problem is in the present and then how that sort of manifests into the future so we're going to discuss that. And then I think it would also be called cool for Jack and I to riff and sort of like play profits and make predictions about the future. <laughs> I want to do that job. at the end. My favourite yeah. role, internet <laughs> profit. Internet profit. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Should we, do you want, do you want to about- start or? Yeah. Do you want to start with, um, with mega politics? Because that seems to be the engine that drives the change that they they um, talk about in this book. Yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. So this is actually the third in three a three book series, and Blood in the Streets, The Great Reckoning, and The Sovereign Individual. I actually have not read the first two books. I didn't find their synopsis interesting enough to go and read, but maybe I should. Mike elucidate more what's happening but i bet you that's just a sales pitch for more of their shit so <laughs> probably yeah. not gonna read it. A, a lot of this book is sales pitch another part of why i recommend this book is that it is quite strange in that so much of it is them shilling things that they're trying to sell you which is completely in keeping with much of the this book's central theme <laughs> it's completely it's very, in keeping very with, consistent. Their, with their uh anarcho-libertarian capitalist pig ethos of just trying to scare you into buying their shit. It's like that pastor yeah. on front, whatever his name is, I can't remember, but I mean, I'm pretty sure there's heaps of them, but he's, this one is a gym, gym something or other, 
this pastor, American pastor, who just like scares the living shit out of people by saying like, oh, he just draws attention to everybody's like fears about Ukraine war or whatever the fuck. And it's like, you're going to need to buy some fucking sludge in a canister. And it's like $600. <laughs> so, you know, it's a one-two We should punch. get on that. We should start selling sludge in a canister. We should start selling fear and the, the antidote oh, that to that too. fear. Yeah, yeah. I meant more concretely, you know, a, a product to sell. We could yeah, sell yeah. people fear. Are you worried about the government smashing in your house? Are you worried about the Raptor Squad coming in and taking away your marijuana and then raping you? Well, Jack and you Levi's are... private security services. <laughs> Jack and Levi's private security services. We will come to your house with guns to protect you. <laughs> That's right. Jack this is the first book club from hell branded product. We're getting into security services. <laughs> We're into the security services. And that's really on point because the sovereign individual, the rise of private security services. Hey, shout out to all our friends. That was such Hatt a good segue to stop me getting off topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just brought that one straight back. Shout out to everybody in yeah, Johannesburg. We know we know our friends in Joburg need some fucking private security services. So if you're willing to move nah, to Prague or in a Australia, <laughs> if you're willing to move away from Johannesburg, in a place where I'm the best armed person. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll give you private security services on the proviso that you move out of South Africa because <laughs> fuck, yeah, fuck yeah. being in South Africa that as a private good. security guard. <laughs> so, all right, um, mega politics. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, getting so back on track. The, okay, the so two authors came up with this idea of megapolitics, and they say that megapolitics is this... It's basically the study of what causes societies to change. Because they say things like the popular will doesn't change things. They say it's a democratic myth that, that circumstances in societies change just because people want them to change. It's like so, the shape... Like there's a there's possible shapes that society like institutions and stuff could take, but it's like the cont the contain container of conditions, um, inside of which, like uh, that constrains uh the shape of institutions and so forth. Or yeah, in particular, we talk yeah. about institutions, but yeah. And to the authors, megapolitics is really the study of factors which alter the boundaries along which violence occurs. So where violence occurs, between which people, for which reasons, at least to the authors, really is the decisive factor in how society is shaped. So they call it the logic of violence. The logic of violence? Yeah. yeah. The logic of violence. So megapolitical factors shape the logic of violence or shape, constrain, yeah. So they highlight at the beginning of the book like four major political mega political factors, which they say historically maybe all four contributed to, but especially over the last say like two thousand to five thousand years, one of those factors has come to dominate, and now these days it's essentially that one factor, and that one factor is uh, technology. The other factors were the microbiome or the yeah, yeah. microbes uh climate and uh, uh what's the other one that and then I geography think? oh and geography yeah um and then technology yeah. and those things all of those have huge impacts on on the logic of violence 
on when violence is profitable for someone, when it's not profitable. But they differ in the speed of, of change. And so with geography, it, yeah, it changes, say, during ice ages or when ice ages finish. That's yeah, a change that's really in geography, but that happens very slowly and it doesn't happen frequently. Climate changes, so they talk about how quite often it's, it's when there are small drops in global temperature, you get famines, which leads to political upheaval. So they, they cite the, uh, the 17th century, which was the coldest in the modern period. It was also a period of global revolution because yeah. you had crop failures, people started starving, people agitated which, for which change. Which makes sense because the material factors will affect, like, you know, yeah. political unrest and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then next, you've got microbes. So microbes change more quickly than, than um, geography and climate. And then finally, you've got technology. And unlike those first three factors, technology is increasing in how rapidly it changes. It's, it's almost exponential. Or it, yeah, it, it is really exponential. is exponential. It really is Just exponential. That, as yeah, we're finding that, out like in the last 10 years. That change in technology. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And so much of this book, while they acknowledge those other three mega political factors, they're really focusing on the technological change because they say it's changing so rapidly. And it's becoming that an increase. In terms of the force. impact it's going to have on our society over the next century or so, it's much, much greater. And you can see that just in the, in the 20th century. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can, I mean, they obviously make the case which we'll explain. Uh, but yeah, like I think everybody who's listening to this fucking podcast, like Jack's on the, Jack and I are on the other fucking side of the world doing this podcast, communicating to like thousands of people anonymously on the internet. We've got a discord and all this sort of stuff. Like we're trying to build a business essentially, or like whatever, um, globally distributed like this, you know, this just wouldn't have been possible 50 years ago. It just wouldn't have even been fathomable that people could make, an independent living without going through like a major network to like get the distribution to like build an audience and that sort of stuff. It just wasn't accessible to anybody. I reckon the ABC would have picked us up. <clears throat> Fuck yeah. Fuck get yeah, a week, weekly segment on Channel 2. Yeah, shout out to um, Andrew Denton. Come on, mate. Pick us up. If anybody <laughs> listening to this show knows Andrew Denton, put us in contact. Waleed Ali, what you need is <laughs> oh, us to have, a, to have a segment on your show. I don't know if he'd be a fan of us. Eh? <laughs> that is exactly like what he's he wants. He's a nice guy, but uh, yes, I don't know if he'd wear his cup of tea. <laughs> Channel 9 News. <laughs> news you can trust. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically... That's a really interesting premise. So why don't we just take stock there? What did you think of um, of that basic idea, the mega politics and uh, those four factors? I think that it, the factors that the two authors listed are huge factors in affecting how how different societies change. Are they missing? I think anything? actually they do it. They address this later in the book, so this is not really a criticism. I do think the culture of the society being mm. influenced by these medical mega political factors also is a huge really important. determining factor in the direction that that society takes. Yeah, super important. So some societies, particularly ones which are what I would think of as culturally brittle, so they don't update based on, on new factors, yep. would meet some of these changes, these mega political changes, and kind of just break and become uncompetitive, whereas other cultures update on the basis of new information in the environment 
and become better adapted to the environment. I guess, yeah, the, these factors act upon cultures, which then produce changes. And I, they did make that clear later in the book, but not when they introduced the idea of megapolitics. Yeah, and I have a feeling that, like, uh, from what they dropped their hint of the Great Reckoning or Blood in the Street, they might have unpacked the cultural element more in those other ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's super interesting. I couldn't think of another factor other than just, like, the ideas in the society, obviously. Like, the ideas yeah. themselves. And like, I guess they'd probably say a, that rolls into culture, but... Yeah, like, if you have a, you know, like, religiously zealous society like the Spartans or the Islanders or whoever, just, like, as you said, like, brittle for whatever reason. In this case, like, when I highlight religion, but you could be, have a brittle ideological society for any number of reasons i suppose um yeah which i guess is interesting because i i mean i won't talk about it too much now maybe i can talk a little bit about louder but like as somebody who's really interested in technology and like um is trying to like make it professionally build computer stuff <laughs> like i meant to try to like learn about technology uh um like i regard technology as like downstream of ideas um, so mm -hmm. yeah, like I'm not, sorry, that is an oversimplification. So I'm speaking really oversimplistically. Like it's not exactly downstream. They, they interconnect and they interplay with one another, but like <clears throat> at the end of the day, like the technology started with like thoughts in people's minds. So yeah, but that's a minor criticism. Yeah. That brings up something I also wanted to say about these mega political factors. I understand that for the purposes of clarity, they separated them into four factors, but there are a lot of interdependencies between them. So, for example, our technology is promoting a change in the climate. So there is that that mechanism there. We we have the capability to make new microbes. So, for example, when Barack Obama made COVID nineteen and released it into the world in in twenty nineteen, that's a extremely <laughs> uncontroversial and true thing that Jack just said. Yeah, it's there. There are lots of <laughs> videos of, online of him oh. him admitting to creating. Oh. And I believe the way that Obama along, made along it with was, Xi Jinping and Takashi Six Nine was licking Anthony Fauci's butthole right as he spurted pure COVID nineteen out of his dick into Barack Obama's <laughs> eyes, and then they like sludged it off into the into the pangolin. They like Obama and the pangolin did that like cum spitting shit. Like spatting each other's yeah, mouths, yeah, and then and then like and then they killed the pangolin and turned it into COVID. Yeah, true story. Yeah. You true story. First, that's you can trust us on that one. You can trust <laughs> us on that one. That's been that's been fact checked by us. Anyway, so as as we can see from that example, human <laughs> beings using technology can also create new microbes, and so there's also that loop there. Again, this is not really a criticism of the authors because there are so many different ways you can set out this information. Yeah. And... Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that's cool. So, <clears throat> through that lens, we're going to focus in, just like the authors did, on technology. And in particular, the problem that they're trying to solve is essentially what is the role that technology has had on the mega political landscape 
historically. How, so they're trying to explain historical circumstances. And then, but also it's not good enough to explain historical circumstances if it's not useful, if your explanation doesn't apply sort of, uh, how would you say? You know, like if you have an explanation of a physical phenomena, it should be like abstract of the idiosyncratic circumstances under which the like experiment mm-hmm. was performed. So like uh, it should essentially apply independent of time and space. I suppose what they're saying is they're trying to come up with an abstract explanation that can be transposed across time frames. So it applies to the past and the present yeah. and therefore the future as well. Um, and they're trying, I do think that they're not trying to be inductive. I think they've tried to come up with a non-inductive um, exp- explanation. Um, so it's really interesting, which I really appreciated. Um, so. Yeah, well, it's quite, it's an attempt at making almost a a theoretical scientific model of what's going to happen in history. So in the same way that people initially came up with this idea of gravity as ex- somehow accelerating objects towards the earth, by basically just dropping objects off progressively higher things and seeing how long it took for them to hit the earth. And they noticed that those objects were accelerating. And from those points, trying to fit a model to that, which could be used to predict something dropped from an arbitrary height, how long it's going to take to hit the ground. That's kind of how I see the authors approaching history in this book. Yeah, and it's a really interesting approach. Um, You've probably read more history. Not probably. You definitely have read more history and stuff than me. So. It'd be good to get your perspective on sort of what they've done in this book compared to what you've read elsewhere. But I guess I'll give a high-level overview of like what their um, analysis of history yields. Basically, yeah, um, there's been three major revolutions, socio-technical technological revolutions that led to like substantial reconfigurations, institutional in particular reconfigurations of societies. Um, There were agrarian societies and then, sorry, there were were hunter-gatherer societies and then there was the agrarian revolution which led to like agricultural societies and early cities. And then there was uh, the industrial revolution these are the major ones. There's also minor revolutions where the other, but these are like the major ones, um, which led to like- There's also the feudal revolution. There was, was the feudal revolution a major one as well? I think so. I think Thanks they so. counted as a major one. Okay, so maybe I was incorrect. So uh, the feudal revolution, which uh, as we'll unpack later, like had a lot to do with like the interplay between castles and like different, you know, like knights and- the relationship between the serfdom and the nobility. Then there was the industrial revolution, which led to like large scale, like uh, economies of scale and factories and like standardization of work and all that sort of stuff. Um, And then we're basically living through the fourth major mega political technological revolution, which is the transition to the information age um, facilitated by like Shannon's information theory, Turing's theory of universal computation, um, and all the associated like technologies that go along with those. Um, yeah, and the Soldier Boy console. And the Soldier Boy console and the Xbox 360 Halo console. The game's evolved. console that Soldier Boy sells. <laughs> Wait, I think really? that's actually been really, really pivotal in all of this. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. Wow, I mean, this is truly an amazing world. When Soldier Boy up in this hoe 
why me shake that? Why me roll? <laughs> I actually don't know what the words are. I just kind of mumble and then yell stuff at certain points when I definitely know the word. <laughs> I think it's what he did. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the basic high-level things. Um, we can unpack them. There's a lot of detail to unpack there, um, but it's really interesting because uh, what they're basically saying is these technological, like one or two key technologies, like watershed technologies, will basically lay the foundation for like uh, a technological revolution that will allow the institutional and political structure of societies to go through a massive transformation. And basically like the centers of power, the distribution of resources, like the economics, all of these sorts of things change radically. And what, basically what they're saying is we're living through the fourth one of those. Yeah. So do you want to walk through, should we go through the history of these different revolutions? Yeah. They're really not, not in the amount of detail that they have in the book. No. But go through we'll them. literally and- be here for like 20 hours if we do that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And while going through them, for listeners, it's important to bear in mind the question that the authors are keeping in their minds the whole time, or the question that they're offering the reader is, where where is the boundary of violence in all of these? So how is that shifting? And in these different situations, in which way is it profitable to be violent? And in which way is it not profitable to be violent? Yeah. They're very interested in the the returns on violence, whether those returns are going up or going down. And, and at uh, least to their minds, that really is the decisive factor ultimately. And I'll in, uh, give a, in how society will appear. Two axes to keep in mind. These are not crossing axes. Are they crossing axes? No, I'm not sure. But I'll give you two axes to help like, uh, like frame these things a little bit more. Um, one axis is centralization and decentralization. So how centralized is like the population distribution, how centralised are the institutions, how centralised is the economic topology. Um, and then the other one is... Uh, sorry, it was centralization, decentralization, and there was another axis I just completely dropped out of my head. <laughs> uh, God damn it, Levi, silly. Anyways, so... Um, oh, yeah, and defensive versus offensive um, technology. So, like... Yeah, yeah, as Jack was saying, with regards to like returns on violence, like do it does a technology like favor the defensive end, so like reducing the return on violence, or does it favor like the offensive end, so increasing the returns on violence? And then these factors all sort of interlock with one another. Is like, uh, does the technology allow an individual or an institution to like project power out into the world, um, like efficiently and at scale, that sort of stuff. So those are the things that they're sort of bringing to bear on their analysis. Should we start off with the um, pre-agricultural societies? Yeah. So pre-agricultural societies, at least. So I'm newsflash. I'm not an archaeologist, so I'm I'm just taking their word for this. The pre-agricultural societies <laughs> didn't fight among each other <laughs> the to, number of times to the extent to that same nation states Hey, just so you know, we're not qualified to, to say anything, really. As a caveat, <laughs> I've got PhDs from Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, <laughs> Yale, just all over. 
all of those Bro-ology. in the archaeological study of pre-agricultural societies. <laughs> I am probably the best qualified person in the world. In the technological structure of pre-agricultural societies across the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was there. Jack, triple PhD. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I've I've I celebrated my um twenty thousandth birthday last year. Um, I was personally there. I know what it's like. So anyway, from my personal experience, hunt hunt hunter gatherer societies didn't didn't interact with each other with the same amount of violence that nation states do or agricultural states do or did. Because they just didn't have a way to, to maintain resources. So, for example, they didn't really have ways of preserving food that were nearly as effective as what we have now. So they would hunt and gather and then really consume what they hunted and gathered fairly quickly. They didn't have things like refrigeration. Maybe I would have expected... I'd expect they'd been able to preserve things in salt... It really depends on the part of the world, like, obviously, um, like, the Inuit stuff had refrigeration. Yeah, they just freeze (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Yeah, but, like, there's... The way that I would put it is that those populations, um, the repertoire of available physical transformations that they can perform are very tightly coupled to... The conditions and the capabilities in the invite in their immediate environment. So whereas yeah, like yeah yeah that's a good way to put it. Right now, I can decouple the transformations that I can perform because <clears throat> I'm pumping pumping so to speak like electrical energy that is being carried from like a dam like a two hundred kilometers away along copper wires and that allows me to like change. The temperature in my house whereas like pre-electricity or like whatever like the temperature of your surroundings is very tightly coupled love your immediate surroundings is very tightly coupled to like the rest of the environment um yeah that's uh one of the ways through that i well, that at least i think about it yeah and the big outcome of that is that they didn't really have ways to accumulate wealth yeah because of that the returns on violence were low because okay, you're, you're one tribe or a band and you see another tribe or band, there's not that much to steal from them. Like you're, you're, the return you would get from inflicting violence on them is pretty low. Like there's just not that much stuff to take. Just the pleasure I think some bands used to take women life. from other bands, but beyond stealing women, there's just not that much. Bit of intertribal cucking going on there, eh? Been going yeah, on exactly. For a while, hasn't it? All throughout human history. Yeah. Shout out to Ilana Selkie. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, had to, I, had to. I don't even fully understand the reference. I just laugh instinctively whenever, whenever I hear her name. <laughs> just a number of times. She just... can be invoked to make any conversation. <laughs> just, you just chuck a name in there, it just becomes funnier. <laughs> <laughs> well take Eleanor, like she's she a great example. She's too. making a career online. Yeah, by fucking talking to dolphins. Why are we mocking her? Like she'd probably make shitloads more money online than we have. The problem is it's really hard to tell. 
with her, given that I don't trust a single word that comes out of her or her husband's mouth. Don Paris, PhD. <laughs> no. <laughs> they're just their existence makes me makes me very happy. Um, anyways, as we were saying, yeah. So those those populations and yeah, it's really interesting. Like I, I've seen one and out. I'm always skeptical about these analyses of quote unquote pre agricultural people, um, especially like really ones that were really from a long time ago because there's this interesting point um michael michael saylor made he's like there was some discovery of like five hundred thousand years ago or something of like a large pile of something like you know a hundred stone axe heads or 500 stone axe heads from like a couple of hundred thousand years ago something like that and he made this point that like historians will look at that and they'll say they'll they'll put forward the conjecture that is least controversial that they can say in order to just like account for those facts. But then he made this interesting point. He's like, he's not a historian, right? But he's a, he's a technologist and he's a person who's built businesses. And he, the question that he asks is like, what the hell does a society, a, a small scale society need with 500 axes? That's not a society that is just like a hunter gatherer society. That's like a society with specialization in it. And if there's specialization, there must've been an economy. If there's an economy, it means that there was a large enough population to support, support like at least some people in the society building and specializing in building a shitload of axes. And the only reason why we don't see the rest of the society is because over the course of like two or 300,000 years, the only fucking thing that survives are like the stone tool heads. <laughs> Everything else just gets destroyed yeah, yeah. by entropy. So we have this huge, like, um, like essentially loss information loss and if you want to make the least controversial most incremental conjectural like proposition to just say well we found some stone heads and that means that there were people who made stone axes it's like great but actually it's kind of the tip of the iceberg there must have been like a much more substantial society than maybe than that than that minimum explanation like can account for but it's all kind of what ifs at that point, you know. Yeah, well, it's just in, inherent in the question of what were people doing tens of thousands of years ago. It's like yeah, the, the evidence is pretty scant. Yeah, I mean, this is assuming that the world is more than five thousand years old, which I don't think there's any evidence for anyway. So, yeah, that too. <laughs> I just well, a lot of it also depends on what the ancient aliens were doing. <laughs> That's that's a real wild card. <laughs> that's a real wild one. Like, did the, maybe the ancient aliens just chuck down some stone axes just to fuck with us? <laughs> <laughs> maybe they were flying the around is, in discs. So the, the, the problem stone. with the ancient aliens is they always dump down things that were roughly contemporaneous with whatever cultures were present at the time. Yeah, that's really weird. They should have just dropped down like an AR-15 in, I don't know, like 50,000 BC just to see what archaeologists would do. Yeah, why don't we ever pull out of like the Arctic fucking like subterranean fucking deep ice like a goddamn like ray gun or something, you know? Like it's never anything interesting. Yeah, yeah it's always just crystal skulls and things like that. And, and the other thing is the aliens always visit rednecks. Didn't they have anything cool? Like, why don't they drop down a PS5? Why don't they drop down a PS5 and come visit, like, some, some like, people outside of, like, rural fucking Minnesota or whatever, where the fuck they visit? 
no offense to rural Minnesota. I shouldn't be mean to people there. I like Minnesota. I've, everybody I've met from Minnesota has been super nice. Yeah. They need to come to a center of civilization. But like yeah, Melbourne. Like, to be fair, like, there is a lot of Minnesota and a lot of it is like not many people. Why are the aliens going out to those sorts of places? Why aren't they going to the middle of New York and shit? Well, these are the questions we need to be asking. We better consult James Dale Davidson and Lord William Rees Mogg <laughs> in their next, their forthcoming book, <laughs> Ancient Aliens of the Future. So, um, anyways, uh, that's agricultural societies. Yeah, this, the fact that they didn't have many, um, they didn't have a way to store wealth, also meant that they tended to be much more mobile. Like when there was intergroup conflict, they tended to just move away from each other. Yeah, so it's decentralizing. Yeah. So they make this argument. I think they make this argument in this book. That it's like, you, if you start getting a, a, a society that can't store wealth, like a lot of wealth, um, starts becoming big, bigger than like, say, the local region can support, like a kind of classic um, carrying capacity argument, then it'll have a tendency to split and distribute. Uh, do they make that argument in this book? I think they do. Um, but And do they also make this argument as well? Fuck, sorry, I'm getting confused between like some of this stuff and some of the other stuff. I think I they say that indirectly. It's, it's certainly yeah. implied in what they say. Reading between the lines. Is the other thing is, uh, is like the societies are like... Um, not, no, I'm not going to go... I'm pretty sure like... No, 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 no. I'm just going to confuse myself. Let's keep on going. <laughs> so what happened? But then one day, this, this perfect paradise, this perfect pre-agricultural paradise that we want to return to. We, want to, we want to return to monkey, but we can't. The agricultural revolution happened and ruined, ruined all of that. Ruined it. Ruined it. All these people Ruined it. were living in perfect harmony with uh, their environment, you know, and stuff. Yeah. As we've discussed before on this show, they were just eating mushrooms, having lots of monkey sex and having group orgies. and Really good visual acuity. <laughs> unbelievable visual acuity. And then, you know what? Ever since, ever since the agricultural revolution, <laughs> our visual acuity has we've dropped dominated through society. the floor, man. <laughs> Everything's been bad. Before agricultural societies, people were never too cold. People always had enough to eat. Everyone was equal. Everyone no was disease. happy. There was no disease. Hey, have you ever noticed this, Jack? Have you ever seen a hunter-gatherer wearing glasses? Have you ever seen an unhappy hunter-gatherer? There you go. I haven't. Unbelievable visual acuity. Unbelievably happy. <laughs> <laughs> no need for glasses. No need for antidepressants. No, none of that. Just pure unadulterated. Yeah, I mean, have you ever heard of a high blood pressure reading from a hunter-gatherer? No, never. Never. No. No. Doesn't happen. Doesn't, doesn't happen. So... It doesn't matter that they couldn't measure blood what, pressure. What, what, what destroyed... If you, don't, if you don't take the reading, then it doesn't exist. <laughs> you just don't have blood pressure. <laughs> you just don't have... <laughs> no, no, not even the it's, it's just undefined. <laughs> <laughs> if you, it's like inflation. If you don't measure it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, even better than not measuring it is just measuring the wrong things with inflation. <laughs> just inflation measuring a bunch happening. of stuff and then making up a number and then saying that's inflation. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that it's not inflating. It, yeah, that's like, imagine if you just like stuck some electrodes into somebody's like skin and then was like, all right, this is your blood pressure. <laughs> that's what they're doing. Yeah, with it's more skin temperature or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fuck, I love Bitcoin. So... <laughs> <laughs> Jack's gonna die here in a second. Just <laughs> he's just gonna- yeah. I'm, I'm sick. I'm just I'm so dedicated to delivering value that I'm. <laughs> I'm gonna be a sovereign individual. This is the mindset that it takes. <laughs> so dedicated to delivering value. <laughs> Oh my god, so we should apply ag- to Y Combinator. Revolution. We should apply to Y Combinator. We Fuck fucking smash up. it. Oh yeah, let's get in with uh, Sam Altman and try to try to get in with Yeah, but I'm I'm on the Y Combinator selection committee, so I just feel like it'd it's be a bit of, of a conflict of interest if I immediately approved everything that we submit to it. <laughs> I don't think I mentioned that previously on the podcast that I'm basically running Y Combinator. Yeah, Jack's Jack's uh, Jack's running that operation these days. He ousted uh, Sam Altman. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I've been operating under a pseudonym up until <laughs> yeah. now, but I do think it's probably time for me to reveal that my full name is Sam Jack's Altman. been un- operating under the pseudonym Paul Graham for the last 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually both both Paul Graham and Sam Altman are me. I'm just really good at doing different voices, which is why they sound quite different <laughs> to how I sound now. You're really good at pretending to be a, an autistic white male from San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Even the number of times that people have asked if I'm autistic, I, I, I sometimes... <laughs> You're starting to question yourself now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, the agricultural revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem with agriculture is it gave people something to steal. <laughs> As we mentioned earlier, when we said that it's important with all of these changes to look at what the change is on, uh, in the return on violence. So with agriculture, you settle down and you have assets and you have a way to store wealth. So if you've got crops, for example, you have to sow seeds, you have to let the plants grow, you have to harvest them. And then once you've done that, you have assets that you can consume, store, or sell. And this raises the return on violence because that's something that someone can steal. Someone, instead of doing all of that work to get those crops or to have livestock, they can just come and take your stuff once you've done that work. So now violence is more profitable. Yeah, just As such, you start, to get, you start to get people who specialize in violence, either to take other people's stuff, or to defend that stuff from yeah. other people yeah, taking Jack. it. It's called it's called the state. And guess what? It's this is the, the forerunner state. of it's called the state government. Bro. Government. There are several points in this Specialist book where they talk about violence, how like mate. bands of armed bandits or bands something like of that armed are the forerunners of government. Were the for, like the what did they say <laughs> that the the thugs on horseback were the were the precursors to the to the um, yeah the chivalry, precursors to government to chivalry. In, in, the, uh, in the European feudal society. So this book is a lot of fun because on one hand, they talk about how, oh, we're going to be, we're going to be balanced and we're just going to say how things are without any reference to our own Impartial, ideological position. Fair and but, balanced. But then they do things like constantly talk about how governments are just 
<laughs> groups of bandits. Thugs. And Thugs also, <laughs> did you notice, as the book goes on, initially, when they talk about the people who will become poorer under the... Um, once the information revolution has really taken effect, there'll be people who lose out. And to begin with, in the book, they refer to them somewhat sensitively as people who will lose out or people who will be poorer. But as the book goes on, they just start calling them losers. Yeah, losers and... Uh... The losers. And and at first, oh, it's the, the losers from the information revolution. And then at the in the last, say, 50 pages, they just call them losers. The losers, the losers who will organize a nationalist backlash against microprocessing. <laughs> and uh, there was a term that they used for like people of, uh, what do they call them? Middling intelligence. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <just> like... Belongers. <laughs> people who want to belong to nation states. I've, I've <laughs> belongers. Yeah. I, I, uh, I always caveat when I give this, when I recommend this book to somebody, I always go, I say something along the lines of, yeah, it's really interesting and stimulating book, but uh, just a heads up, like, the authors are really unlikable. <laughs> like, they're really not. It is, it is aggressively libertarian. <laughs> really not nice people <laughs> to read. Like, they're, <laughs> they're so obnoxious. They're extremely obnoxious people. But if you can sort of, like, wade through 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 that, then um, it's got a lot of good stuff in there. <laughs> yeah. The agricultural revolution did have good aspects, though. So they said that among hunter-gatherers, there was little incentive for people to really try or put in effort beyond what was necessary to secure food. Because not only... Because you couldn't store wealth. Would you not get anything out of it? But it would be a net negative for you and the people around you because you'd consume more resources. If you make yourself hungrier by just going out and finding more berries or spearing more animals than you could consume because if that stuff rots then you've just expended all of this energy and you're not any better off than you were in the first place whereas with agriculture there is now an incentive to start trying or to start exerting yourself beyond what is necessary just to to secure subsistence for the next day because you do have assets that you can store and that had the effect of it really starts oh it didn't start technological progress because Hunter-gatherers did have technology, they had spears and axes and stuff like that, but there's, a, there's more of an incentive to make new technology. So technological change increases with the agricultural revolution. Maybe that's also when, like, population started, like, taking off as well. You know, you started getting yeah, cities. Yeah. I was reading the, this book The carrying capacity about, of land increased a lot. About, um... Yeah, because it's like, uh... Like... The carrying capacity of any particular plot of, like, land or natural resources or whatever is, like, also a function of the knowledge of the society. <laughs> you know, so, like, if knowledge, like, if a society figures out how to do a new thing with the same physical stuff, <laughs> then they might get new things out of it. Um, so, like, they, uh, they figured out all sorts of interesting things to do. And uh, there's this one book I was reading recently about the history of technology, like the first cities that came up in like Samaria and stuff. Really interesting. Uh, mm. That was the first time when like, at least on records, I mean, this book was a little bit dated, so there might be new findings since then. But the first cities of like 20,000 or 50,000 people um, in like the those three rivers, the Euphrates, Euphrates Tibris, and um, 
whatever the other one is. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I, I just think like if you're talking about for millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years, humans had never really had settlements larger than maybe like a few hundred or a few thousand people. It must have been absolutely mind blowing for somebody to walk in and, and see like a small citadel, citadel made out of like I don't know, I suppose clay or clay bricks or stone or something, occupied fifty thousand people. Like that would have been mind blowing. Yeah, that would have been incredible. But those cities were only able to exist because um, they were able to like transform the land around the cities like for example like obviously egypt being like classic one like being able to uh create agricultural land off the floods over the nile um supported like an entire empire yeah and that's an important point that this promoted centralization yeah because people had something people had something to lose and people had something to steal which promoted people and, banding and together to protect had themselves and also promoted people banding together to take other people's stuff. So promoted organisation, which eventually led to, to governments. And, and it's really interesting as well, because I, I think like, sorry, I, I'm living a little bit here, but like those societies was so profoundly interesting about them as they started, especially once they figured out writing, like, like Hammurabi's code, like this idea that like there's a ruler. And, uh, you know, like people like Hammurabi or um, Gilgamesh. I think Gilgamesh was based on an actual person. Um, like the epic of Gilgamesh was factually based on it. Like there was an actual dragon that Gilgamesh actually slayed. Um, and the idea that they put these laws yeah, nice. on tablets and then like, like brought forth this uh, invocation of like, this is what happens here. Like, how do I put it? What am I trying to express? Like, there was a time where that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, like for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, humans, like, didn't have, like, now we've got computers, but we didn't basically have, like, external objects with laws and codes written on them, you know? It's so weird to think that that wasn't the case at some point. Now we're 10, 15,000, how many thousands of years into this whole thing? And um, we take it for granted. But yeah, that must have been just an enormous shift in the way that people thought. And it does, so much of it seems to be downstream of the fact that people developed ways to store wealth externally like, or store wealth over time. And, and, it, and then you have all of these, these huge downstream effects of that. And an interesting one is I always think about there's this saying. And I don't know if it's actually factually true, but in, in Indigenous Australia, like, you'll hear things said something like, uh, it's the world's oldest culture or oldest unchanging culture or some, something to that effect. And, you know, my first inclination is like, well, how do we know that? You know, like, what are we going to, how are we going to tell? Like, we're going to base that on, like, cultural artifacts, right? But, like, you can tell if, like, we had writing, but there wasn't writing. There was, like graphical symbolic representations and there was the technology like the artifacts um but there wasn't like explicit writing and so there's like an assumption that the way the culture was kept unchanging was through like an oral tradition that somehow there must have been like 
memological mechanisms to like enforce the non-changingness of or like the invariance of the culture from generation to generation, which I'm deeply skeptical of because that's just an unfalsifiable claim. But um, like most societies before, well, well, all societies before there was some sort of writing had to project, if they wanted to project an invariance through time, they could only really do that through oral stuff or through, um, say, like art or whatever. It wasn't until like the invention of writing that, okay, we could actually project some sort of like normative invariance onto like an external artifact and have that project into the future. Mm. Mm. And that's kind of off topic, but it's just something I've I've been thinking about <laughs> like for the last couple of years. And uh, it's, oh, it's, it's vaguely on topic. It's more on topic than us talking about <laughs> Chief Keith and the uh, the Soldier Boy console. See, because I got obsessed with like technology like a few years ago, like when I dropped out of medicine, and. Um, and I think the reason, part of the reason I got obsessed with technology is because like, um, like being indigenous, uh, like kind of, I guess had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about the technology thing. Cause like, cause like, I don't want to go into too much detail about it, but just like, you know, like had some racism and stuff when I was younger. And like part of that racism was around like, <clears throat> like cultural, scientific, technological, like superiority or inferiority of like say some of my classmates <laughs> and what they said about Aboriginal people. And I was thinking about like uh, this one time in particular, like we were, we went to the museum, like local museum. And I was the only Aboriginal kid in like my school at that time, or like definitely in my class, maybe there was like one Aboriginal, other Aboriginal kid in the school. And like, <clears throat> we went to this museum and we went to the indigenous section and we we're looking at like the boomerangs. <laughs> we we're looking at the fucking boomerangs, and there's all sorts of boomerangs. You know, like depending on how you shape it, like some will return, some will just like fly straight. You know, and use them for hunting and stuff. And <clears throat> the the tour guide like was pointing at one of the axes. Oh, sorry, at one of the boomerangs, and was like, "Do you guys know what this boomerang was used for?" And <laughs> I'm just strictly just like all my classmates just looked at me. It's just, <laughs> it just like I don't know. <laughs> Levi's good at boomerangs. Don't fucking know. I grew up, grew up, grew up in metropolitan Sydney. Like I don't fucking throw boomerangs. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Metro Sydney. You never leave home without your keys, phone, wallet, and boomerang. <laughs> Like and and then even when I did yeah, this throw, will come in handy throw today. fucking boomerangs when I was a kid, it was like the plastic ones with three three points, and they actually fucking come back to you. Like the ones that we got that we had at home were just like ornamental, you know, like artistic, you know. Like we had boomerangs at home, but they were painted on or whatever. I wasn't throwing the fucking boomerangs, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think like I always had a chip on my shoulder about like about this stuff, and uh, and so part of the reason for like getting into technology and like trying to really understand it is just like, well, why was there such a, just an enormous difference between like um, Europeans, the Europeans who colonized Australia, and like uh, the uh, indigenous people who are living here, and and then also another question which I think is one that people don't really think very much about but i actually think it's a more important question which is okay you have these two drastically different cultures 
they collided and like a couple hundred years later, you know, it's very different society. But one thing that we take for granted is that like, we, we all sort of understand that like an Aboriginal kid or like an African kid or an Asian kid or a European kid, they can all learn like science and technology and mathematics. And like, that might be an uncontroversial thing to say now, but that's actually a profoundly interesting thing to say. What we're saying is like these two populations, which were separated for tens of thousands of years and followed completely divergent, like socio-cultural, political and technological like pathways. Once they collided again, there's still some invariance in the human neurological or like cognitive Mm -hmm. structure that meant means that like even if i plucked like a kid out of a hunter-gatherer society from in the middle of the fucking amazon right now we know that if we took the time that kid could learn everything that like a kid raised in england could learn and that's actually like that's a non-trivial thing like that's an unbelievable fact yeah yeah (laughs) you know like that means that there's some invariance that exists deep in the human construct that must precede any cultural divergence. It must go all the way back to like our original, like tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years ago. Anyway, sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> no, it's really interesting because one of my favorite chapters of this book is I think the last or the penultimate chapter where they start talking about the social morality of the, the information age, where they do, I don't think they directly talk about what you just mentioned, but definitely from what they say what you just said follows how they talk about how cultures are really adaptations to local circumstances and they have different outcomes and so trying to predict what sort of culture will arise from this very very connected technologically advanced society that they predict is coming when we talk about that chapter which i'd like to yeah, let's talk about it then because that there's, that's up. when they start saying optimistic things. A lot of this book is really pessimistic. Yeah. <laughs> and then sort of towards the end they say, actually, no, this is actually a really good thing because it gives more opportunities to lots of people. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, agriculture. Yeah, agriculture okay, in sucks. In terms of the history, <laughs> agriculture, agriculture sucks because it gives, it gives people a reason to be violent in an organized way. But also, it's, it's good in some ways because it does promote technological progress because people can store value. So it gives them an incentive to create things which allow them to store more value per unit time. Feudal revolution, that sucked because... So around... They say it's around 1000 AD. You got the feudal revolution, which was a response to the violence and insecurity after the disintegration of the Roman Empire and because of the technology uh, which, which allowed... Heavy cavalry. They said you've you got um special horse technology, the special stirrups and things like that. that I don't really know anything about because I I don't trust horses because <laughs> that <laughs> they're just much bigger animals than I am. Dude, have you ever seen videos on YouTube of somebody getting kicked in the head by a horse? Oh yeah, it's just like you flick a switch, they turn off. Yeah, you'd be like like you do not want to get kicked by a horse. They're just too big for me to trust them. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not even going to try to convince you that that's a perfectly <laughs> rational like fear to have. <laughs> I guess with the so anyway that 
it was quite well i don't have to deal with it so it was kind of darkly funny <laughs> they said that one of the big reasons one of the big things that pushed towards the feudal revolution was the fact that you now had heavy cavalry and it was very very expensive to become a knight that i have all the armor to have the to pay bethesda the microtransaction to get the horse armor dlc in oblivion that's all expensive but they were also far more effective than infantry in fighting so you could just have this one heavy knight absolutely tear up a group of infantry of of like <laughs> yeah, three holders funny. You just with swords. Like some big like six foot six behemoth you know like probably smelly smelly and fucking hairy probably never taken i'm a sure they smell shower terrible. in their fucking life just rolls up on a on a you know like a one of those big fuck off you know, horse. horses. Those really big work horses. Blasting show tech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> has, uh, has a uh, has a little like um, portable speaker blasting Skrillex while, yeah, while yeah. he like sh- swings his broadsword <laughs> <laughs> through through the surfs. So he's just blasting like two thousand twenty ten dubstep. <laughs> He's waiting for the drop before he fucking drops his broadsword on some on some peasants. Starts decapitating peasants, <laughs> and their heads. I imagine their heads just like plop off, just like. <laughs> you get the hit marker sound. The <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's that. I've got to say, like honestly, that is one of my favorite sounds in the world. <laughs> It is such a satisfying noise. That's like that's perfect game design where it's like it's like operand conditioning. It's like yes, got it. Reward me. Yeah. <laughs> Get a little squirt of dopamine whenever I hear that. Anyway, yeah. So what they these people just went out and started hit hit marking <laughs> all of these people, all these freeholders. <laughs> And it became such a problem that basically the central government couldn't control it. So it was between the collapse of the Roman Empire and the feudal revolution, you had it, things were a lot better for common people because a ton of people died. You know, I think the Antonine plagues. So the population dropped a lot. The heavy plough was invented, which made it so that clearing land for farming became much cheaper and so the cost of land dropped precipitously because instead of buying land you could just go and clear some land in the north for yourself there's definitely a dick joke in there somewhere and so (laughs) for a while things became much better for people because the the returns on violence dropped quite a lot because now like yeah you could steal people's land but in many ways it was probably cheaper just to go and find land yourself yeah, but it would pay a lot if you enslaved the people to work the land. Well, that changed when technology changed. So when you could get heavy knights. Fuck yes. When you got far enough along your Age of Empires 2 tech tree, you could get heavy <laughs> cavalry. <laughs> you, mounted cavalry, yeah. Then the return on violence rose again because instead of before where a lot of, a lot of combat apparently took place between infantry mm. who had fairly similar weapons... Now you had heavy knights, which could kill a lot of infantry by themselves, but were very, very expensive to equip. So now you had a greater incentive to violence again. And eventually you got the feudal revolution, which was where the, church, the Catholic Church recognized all of these basically bandits, <laughs> these, these heavy cavalry, 
and gave them titles and land mm. so that they had an incentive instead the, of just roaming around the countryside killing people. The landed gentry. Yeah, they could settle down and be the nobility. Yeah. I don't know if this is true or yeah, not. I didn't according to the authors, that's where the nobility came I have from. So, I'm so skeptical of that fucking claim, though. Can I be honest? <laughs> I'm so skeptical of I'm that. skeptical <laughs> of the claim. It, it seems too convenient. But I don't it? know. Hey, like, it just perfectly plays into the narrative. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe. I'd have to go and fact check, like, get it. Maybe it'll come up somewhere else in my historical reach. I'll get back the biggest, to you with that yeah, one, exactly. The biggest gamers, the ones who could rack up the biggest body counts, <laughs> the ones uploading FaZe Clan no-scope <laughs> compilations were the ones who got, got land and became the landed gentry. Um, so that was, that was, that was further decentralisation because under feudalism, you, and they all started building castles and yeah, things like that which are really hard so defensive technology yeah so it's a it's a different type of decentralization so the central government was extremely weak because whenever mm-hmm. the central government wanted like to monarchs. for example invade anyone or defend against invasions they had to convince all of these other lords in their castles to send people to defend them yeah and they even they made and all of these that- lords marched under their own banners that they were quite separate in terms of power. However, if you were just a pleb, if you were former, formerly a freehold farmer, life got a lot more centralised because you had to live under the protection of this lord, which basically mean that you sold your land to the lord and farmed it for them, basically. Like, you could take food that you farmed, but then the rest just went to your lord. Yeah, it was basically like... They were essentially slaves. Like, I don't know, is it, what's the line between a slave and a serf, I suppose? <clears throat> serf has some degree of freedom. I, but think, like, I think serfs are tied to land, yeah. whereas slaves you can- Are tied to the person. Send wherever. But like, you're, you're really splitting hairs. It's not like someone's yeah. going to start lording over someone else. Like, yeah, I'm a serf, you're just a slave. Yeah, although, no, I bet you that did fucking happen. <laughs> I, I bet you that actually did happen. Yeah, having said that, knowing human beings and our just innate love of forming hierarchies, <laughs> I bet you did have people. It's like, yeah, I'm a serf. I come as a package deal with a piece of land, whereas you're Move, just a slave. slave. I'm Move. so much better Move. than you. Get out of here, slave boy. Just like... Dude, everybody's poor. Everybody in that society was dirt fucking poor. <laughs> everything everything sucks. Everything's cold. Everything gives you diseases. Everybody's got fucking syphilis. <laughs> like, everybody's poor. <laughs> Even the rich person in the stone castle, hey, guess what? They're living in a house made out of fucking stone, and it's cold. It's cold yeah. as shit, and they have to burn shitty wood that smokes up their fucking house, and they're cold all the time, and they sleep in a bed made out of fucking straw, and they're itchy all the time, they're covered in ticks, and nobody's got a shower, and nobody has plumbing or fucking anything. Nothing fucking works. Like, everybody was poor. <laughs> it sucked. Nobody wants to go back to it feudal so Europe. Tread. It was so based. <laughs> so based. Fuck, fuck living it's in so feudal based. Europe. Fuck living in feudal Europe. I like their castles now that we can rig them up with electricity and broadband internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, they're cool better. now. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't just think of that back <laughs> yeah, then. It's so obvious. It's so fucking obvious. They didn't just come up with Maxwell's equations. It so obviously like, would have made the castles better if they had central heating and high-speed internet. 
What the fuck was wrong with him? <laughs> you know, like the Starfleet. Dumbasses. The, the, the Starlink fleet has like achieved something like 90% coverage now of the Earth's surface. You can get like 100 bit me- megabit speeds, some shit like that now. Holy shit. I should get that here. Yeah, it's crazy. They set that shit up super fast. Exactly. But they should have just done it. <laughs> they should have done that a thousand years ago, though. <laughs> Why did they leave it so late? <laughs> yeah. Why didn't William II or whatever the fuck was alive back then? I don't know. I don't know. The line of all these monarchical families, just whatever dumb fucking feudal lord was alive in like what is now Monday Poland, why didn't they just launch some satellites into space and give everybody broadband internet? <laughs> get off your get off your horse. So the thing the thing with the feud with the feudal era that is important in the context of the sovereign individual is this idea of chivalry. I like this section. Because this they compare really chivalry section. to citizenship today. Yeah, this is one of my favorite so sections. Chivalry emerged as a response to the the mega politics of the feudal world. So in the feudal world, because defense was so much stronger than offense, so you, you were in your castle, this was before they had rockets or cannons or anything like that. So attacking an entrenched enemy was extremely difficult. And for this reason, in, in addition to many other reasons, the central government was really weak when compared to all of these feudal lords in their castles scattered around this notional central ruler's territory. And whenever this central ruler had to fight a war, either of offence or defence, they had to convince these lords to send them soldiers. And so this idea of chivalry grew up. So under the chivalric code, you would swear an oath to your lord. And so if you're, if you're some serf, you swear an oath to, to your lord, to the local baron, that you'll defend the baron when the baron asks you to. The baron swears an oath to their king that they're going to send people, they're going to send troops and money to help out when the king calls upon them. And so you've got this, this very vertically oriented society arranged as a series of oaths to the person above you in the pecking order. And this emerged as a, as a response to the, the mega political situation of there being violence. There definitely was a reasonable return on violence. So you needed a way to organize, to defend yourself. But also, there was this decentralized character because of the technology of the time that rather than, as is the case today, having large militaries of, of citizens, of the government being able to directly interact with citizens, it was mediated through these local landowners. And so you got chivalry. However, chivalry broke down pretty quickly when, when particularly gunpowder and the printing press came about. So it was, in this book, they mark it as about 1500, in part because they have this theory that roughly every 500 years in the West, there's a major change, a major megapolitical change. And so the year 1500 fits in nicely with that. But around that time, you started to get gunpowder, and you got the printing press, and that really changed society. So feudal society was pretty ready for a change. The church in around the year 1000, served a really important role in reducing violence, in giving all of these, these local bandits land and titles to make them settle down and become nobles instead of just highwaymen. But by the time 1500 rolls around, the church is so bloated with bureaucracy. It has massive costs. It's extremely inefficient. 
it, it exists just to tax the shit out of people, doesn't really offer anything in return. And as the, the authors of this book repeatedly point out, in case the parallel were too unclear, that's what governments do today. <laughs> and just as the church was going to be undercut by the advent of gunpowder in the printing press, so will governments today be undercut by the advent of the internet and microprocessors. One of the funniest parts that they share about the chivalry thing is the importance of chivalry, like keeping your um your oaths. It was like one of the kings of England. Yeah, and all the weird oaths. Yeah, they had all. lots of really interesting, funny oaths about, I don't know, like walking around for 30 days or some shit with like Biting a shackle with eye on one's leg or something. And one of them was that I yeah. really liked was like you couldn't be, um, what was it? It was something like within a mile. Oh, so fuck. Oh, yeah, they, they weren't allowed to... Um, to sleep further than a mile or something from a battlefront. Yeah, yeah. When they were fighting a war, and so they all got killed. And then, and then one of the kings of England had to like stake out <laughs> because he he couldn't if he was seen to return back to the camp or some shit. Um, like he would have been just like completely ashamed and probably killed <laughs> for like breaking his oath. So he ended up like sleeping overnight, like behind enemy lines, in order to not break his oath. Wasn't it something like he decreed that that scouts in some particular war weren't allowed to wear armor because it would be dishonorable to be wearing your coat of arms and not engage the enemy? And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, he yeah. was out in his <laughs> yeah, armor. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was out in his armor and saw the enemy and so couldn't retreat because that would have been dishonorable because he was wearing a coat of arms, so he just slept there overnight. <laughs> and the authors were making the point that that seems completely ridiculous to us, but at the time, the culture evolved in response to these megapolitical demands, and so it actually made this strange sort of sense for people to behave in this way. Yeah, that's why I, I actually don't agree with, in modern parlance, People often leverage, or sorry, they'll say that like a particular behavior is irrational, according to like some yeah, I dislike some that. very like prescriptive idea of what rationality should or shouldn't be, or something like that. And often it's people who are into like behavioral economics, like Kahneman, or uh, like Bayesian epistemology, like um, Stephen Pinker. Like, they have this idea that, like, rationality is, like, basically conforming to, like, the probability calculus, like, some 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 interpretation of the probability calculus, which I disagree with. But it's like, <clears throat> that king wasn't being irrational. Like, within the sort of cosmogony and, like, the social protocols and all this sort of stuff in his society, like, probably was a really sensible thing to do. Probably if he had retreated, they probably just would have chopped his head off. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like his own men just would have been like, all right, you're yeah, done. Well, it, it goes back to what what we'll d discuss later in the episode, that chapter I mentioned near the end of the book where they talk about cultures being these, these responses to local circumstances, which are subject to quite a degree of selection in that the ones that are best adapted to local circumstances are the ones that tend to survive and persist through time. 
like they they are responding to some sorts of survival pressures that they're it's doing just the survival pressures cultures are very rarely just arbitrary yeah. it almost never like it's very burkean in that just because you don't know what some particular cultural form is doing it doesn't mean that it's not doing anything yeah no yeah that's a really good way of putting it absolutely like people are always at the end of the day like solving some problem like you might not have all the information in front of you to like assess what their problem situation is but they're not just like acting randomly <laughs> you know like that when somebody act is acting like <laughs> perfectly <completely> random, random. <laughs> <laughs> there is no, no basis for there's it. no internal logic to it it's just a random just collection of behaviors <laughs> <laughs> Man, that'd be weird. <laughs> I, I think that must be what... And the wild thing is, so quite often it feels like internet is culture like that. is just pure noise, <laughs> except it, it's like every other culture. Or, I mean, you say internet culture, it's probably like you know, thousands and thousands of, of interconnected yeah. subcultures all influencing each other. But they are also... And having little fights with each other and stuff. Yeah. But they are also solving some sort of local problem. What? There is some deep order <laughs> to the panoply some, of internet subcultures, which is Jack crazy. just read the order of things and is now like trying to sort of reverse engineer like all the totality of all internet culture. <laughs> <laughs> Except what is the uh, internet culture? What is the ground truth of the internet culture? <laughs> what do you what what um what problem? Is our part of the internet trying to solve Jack? You mean like the, yeah, the, the book fucking club book from club. Hell. The thing that we're doing right now, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing that we've been doing for the last 18 months. <laughs> it depends on how generous I feel like being to us. If I'm going to be very generous to us, I would say that there is a real appetite for hearing opinions that aren't... Aren't justified. Just kind of mouthing either... Mouthing empty platitudes for liberalism, and I do think there are platitudes for liberalism which aren't empty. I think there are good reasons why it's still uh, quite quite a competitive memeplex. But people just mouthing fairly empty platitudes about why liberalism's great and why things are great now and why we shouldn't change anything without. Are thinking you saying about we it. should mouth more empty platitudes for liberalism? I think we should, uh, <laughs> because that will have greater mainstream appeal. But for niche appeal. People do want to hear other points of view without being told that they're awful for wanting to think about them and wanting to hear about them. So I do think we do we do serve that function in that we're willing to read and talk about Evola without just telling everyone he's an evil, nasty fascist and you're evil and nasty for even wanting to hear about him or even wanting to know his name. I think there is there is appetite for people genuinely talking about non-mainstream ideas. It's weird, interesting fringe ideas. Yeah. Yeah, I I have a sense that I'm also trying to solve. Well, this is my. I wonder if anybody else on the Discord or in our audience might um share a similar um problem situation as me. But like, I want to see like all like all the different ideas that the human mind is like capable of concocting. You know, I I have a very just like science engineering educational background. Um, and so whilst it is good and I appreciate it in some sense, it's quite narrow and, you know, just learnt about 
energy transitions in the cell or whatever. <laughs> Just spent four years doing that. <laughs> what the fuck ever. Um, and that's fine. It's interesting. But there's a whole bunch of other interesting ideas out there. And they all come from the same place, the human mind. Yeah. Honestly, a big motivation for doing this is that I do tend to read pretty strange stuff. Yeah, you've been reading anyway, strange stuff. So, so I may as well get something out of it. Yeah. yeah, you might as well get something out of it. Okay, what are we talking about? Oh, the end of feudalism. Yeah, cool. So um, are we on to chivalry? Oh, yeah, and the other parallel they draw uh, is just uh, you drew the, sorry, uh, just whining about uh, the parallel between citizenry and chivalry, right? Yeah. So I guess the, the main thing to say about that is World War One and World War Two, and maybe even to a degree like the Vietnam War and maybe Korea, at least for some people who fought in those wars, maybe not all of them, but for some of them, there was a sense of like fighting for a nation state or maybe for World War One, it would have been fighting for, you know, king and empire or whatever. Um, or if you were a, a German in World War Two, maybe it was like the race. Um, and so th- there's this like construct of like collective identity or like a a normative ideal that like demands that you say do what another person would think are really strange things like not retreating from behind enemy's lines because you're in your armament you're like uh regalia but you might also think like in the future if we live in a world where there are no longer nation states those people our descendants will look back at the 20th century and see millions of young men like being thrown at machine guns for these political structures they might consider that to be a very strange thing as well yeah and they'd think of it in the, as as something as strange as how we think about that that king refusing to retreat because he was wearing his armor with his coat of arms yeah. on yeah and i guess for what it's worth, I think that's really that's a that's that's, that's quite a profound, a profound thought, thought yeah. and probably will end up being yeah. True. And I don't necessarily know what comes. So I always put it like this in my head: I think there will be an end to the nation state because I think just like political structures change and evolve, and I hope that whatever comes after the nation state will be better. The reason, so basically, what I'm saying is like I hope the reason why the nation state goes away is because we've come up with a better way of organizing ourselves socially and politically rather than because there's been some cataclysm and we end up in a worse position but as as it changes and evolves and if it's getting better like i often think like well then what does that transition look like what does it actually look like for the nation state to go away and and why would it go away and what do we even mean when we say like i'm australian or this other person's american or whatever. Yeah, it is really interesting thinking about that. To a large extent, they, well, the authors of this book are trying to address that very question. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways they've kind of left it pretty open-ended. They, they have some proposals about, like, city-states and that sort of stuff. Um, but I think, like, this century, like, basically a bunch of experiments will be run and we'll see most of them will fail. Maybe one or two will be really interesting and work out. What were we saying? Oh, yeah, gunpowder and the printing press come around and almost immediately just undermine the power of feudalism. Yeah. So now that you've got gunpowder and cannons, castles are much, 
much less impregnable now that you can blow this holes This might have in. been my favourite part of this section of the book because I think this highlights, like, this is, this is why them picking this as an example is so good. It's such a good demonstration because essentially, like, you had these... So I think it's 1494 in Florence, the first use of the first effective use of gunpowder pow, gunpowder cannons to destroy castle fortifications is the watershed moment that they highlight. And basically, if you look at it from like an energetics perspective, basically like you've got a projectile and it has to deliver like a certain amount of force in like a certain surface area in order to like penetrate uh, like the defensive barrier. And obviously like depending on the materials and how thick the defensive barrier is, is like how much force it can withstand. And this was basically like, okay, we've got this wall and it'll withstand trebuchets or whatever, or, you know, it's too high to like climb over or like, you know, we can defend ourselves against bows and arrows and stuff. And then all of a sudden this like little tiny, piece like round piece of metal just comes out of nowhere and just like just penetrates just sends a fucking like piece of lead just straight through the fucking rock and it's like moment if i like visualize what it must have been like for those people inside that castle like they it would have just been like what the fuck is going on <laughs> you know yeah yeah and i think it also maps when you see things like recently a year or two ago, there was the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict um, where basically was it um, uh, uh, Azerbaijan got a bunch of Bayraktar drones from Turkey and just like fucking just shredded Armenia's like um, infantry and and uh, tanks or whatever they had. And it was one of those moments where it's just like, yeah, they figured out this asymmetric advantage to d deliver just like precision fucking missiles and just like completely nullified the Armenian defense, <laughs> you know, and that all they are just those little planes. <laughs> and yeah. oh, that happened in the Ukraine thing as well. Yeah. To situate this though in megapolitics, that border along which violence occurs has changed again. Yeah. So with gunpowder... And the printing press coming in. Oh, it's scary now, yeah. But with gunpowder and the printing press coming in. So now, because guns are now just a more, more useful way of fighting, or just a really important tool of violence compared to swords, guns require you yeah. to have a lot of commercial power because you can mass produce them, but they're expensive to make. Yeah. And they're also weapons that you need less training. So to be a yep. really good sword fighter requires more training than basically giving a peasant a gun and saying, okay, go shoot that person who's been training for the past 10 years to be a really good sword fighter. And, and stand and like go 30 feet away where they like You just need you. to be... Yeah, yeah. You don't need to be nearly as well trained. And so this favours more centralisation. Yeah. Because now all of those feudal lords... The government doesn't need to deal with them directly, or the central authority doesn't need to deal with them directly. What they want to do is get as many of these peasants or serfs and as they can, everything. get lots of commerce going so they can buy or manufacture a ton of guns, give those peasants guns, and then just send lots and lots of peasants to, 
to consolidate their control over their territory. There was a really wonderful example. So of again, this, um, which they don't mention in the book, but it's another historical it, like that highlights. It's in mega politics, I think, as well. Like during the revolution, was it the Revolutionary War? No, or was it the um, uh, like the um, the fucking the war in America, um between the north and the south like one of the innovations that the north had would say when standardized all the rifles so before the standardization like different people would have like oh, okay. different like calibers of guns and different like um like all the bits of the guns were all different and basically like one i think was like one of the important generals like, i don't know about american history but one of the important generals like his insight was like make everybody's gun the same and standardize everything. And so that meant that like, if you, your gun did broke, you could use the, like another person's gun, <laughs> you know, there was that big change in terms of gunpowder, but then in terms of the printing press, that was, that was as big a change Super important. In t- when it came to undermining, yeah, the feudal world, because the, the feudal world was in large part, it had the Catholic church as this extra national underpinning, of life, but the church's authority was undermined pretty quickly. So with the printing press, you could distribute Bibles among people in languages Locally, other than Latin. Like English and German were the first ones, hey? Yeah. And it also, it, it undermined the scriptoria. <laughs> so the church made a lot of money in scriptoria, which is basically where people would just copy I down. I love the idea of the hand. scriptoria. And the, I just, it's just such a miserable. Yeah, they made money that way. Just imagine, like you're just some monk. It's you miserable. You can't fucking existence. like read, but or, you know, you're just like transcribing these symbols, arcane symbols. Let's copy the just shapes. copy the shapes, and then some fucking like priest will just like bark in Latin at a village. These shapes that you've copied by candlelight, probably <laughs> that <laughs> no one understands. understands. Yeah. Fucking weird time in history, man. that's my that's my two cents the the authors of this book make the point that that was that was really important before the printing press because it was a way that the church maintained knowledge and social control it's just when the printing press came along it it invalidated that overnight yeah a, a huge part of it was also like being able to control the message and like institutionalized like authority and knowledge Whereas, like, this, uh, they caught, they, this was one of my, oh, man, I fucking love this book. <laughs> Another one of my favorite ideas that they had. <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> Fuck yes. James Dale Davidson and Lord William Rexham. <laughs> Fuck yes. You guys are legends. They had this idea of, like, um, the, the economy, economization of heresy. So, like, basically being able to dissent. And how cheap and efficient you could like distribute dissenting opinions. And they're like highlighting that there was this like proliferation. Like not only it's not like with the Protestant Revolution, it wasn't just like there was only one Protestantism. It's like there's a whole proliferation of like so many different schools now. There's like how many different schools of uh Protestantism in in the West now, just like heaps and heaps and heaps. <laughs> and um, you know, that's partially because what they say is like drop the cost of basically dissent or heresy. I think they said it was like the, the economization of heresy, something like that. I thought that was such a fucking good idea. And the basic what they were saying is like, 
the internet has put that on steroids. <laughs> you just just like have just unbelievable amount of dissent <laughs> and just alternative opinions and stuff on the yeah. internet now. It's just gone into overdrive. Yeah, absolutely gone into overdrive. Yeah, it is going to be really interesting seeing how the internet revolution plays out. Because when you think the... Try to remember when the Gutenberg Press was from. It was from the 1430s, I think. Yeah, I believe you. See, the problem with you, Jack, is and you don't say it with enough conviction. You could have said 1313, and if you just said it, just... I would have believed you. <laughs> it's, it's not about the content yeah, of the message. So it was, it was it's invented in, in 5 BC. <laughs> no, I think it was from the 1430s. Yeah. <laughs> but the printing press, like the, the effect it had on European society was huge. But from that, there's a pretty clear through line from that to Protestantism. And the effects of Protestantism we're still feeling today. Like it, the, the, the printing press had centuries worth of repercussions through history. We're so early on in the internet revolution. Like we're only getting oh, started. We're only getting started. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, I'm super excited. Like this is, this, is, this is printing press that's faster that you can immediately send to just an arbitrary. No, this is now printing press where you're one click away from cost. a generative AI that'll write a fucking essay for you. Yeah, for yeah. For free. Like this is fucking nuts. <laughs> this is nuts. And yeah, then you can, and then you can, we're then only you can getting started. Energy, put it on a blockchain and send it across to the other side of the fucking planet for like 12 cents and listen to Jack and I talk about yeah. sovereign individual for three hours. Fucking crazy cunts. If you're listening to this, you're fucking weird. <laughs> Good on you. Give us some money. Go to our Patreon. <laughs> $60,000 Patreon. Too. Just incredible. Just incredible. Just incredible. The internet is crazy. I don't think anybody foresaw this. We'll talk about the bots more no, later. But th- like- the, the authors of the sovereign individual foresaw how important the internet would be, but they didn't predict. It's getting wild. I don't, they didn't really try to predict its culture. Like the, the, the internet, the culture of the internet is just the so cultural stuff they didn't well. predict. And also like, I don't think anybody really like saw how, how crazy the generative AI stuff could get. <laughs> like, that's pretty nuts. No, no. It is pretty nuts. But even the idea that like, uh, you know, like a Scandinavian fucking teenager, could, like PewDiePie can build a, an audience of 50 million people in the span of like five years and then become like worth millions and millions of dollars from his fucking bedroom. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, well, there's, that's just a thing these days. Like, everybody knows that that's something that happens these days. So that's not normal. <laughs> yeah, one thing that the authors didn't foresee, which so few people did, was just the, the financial returns on attention. Mm. Mm. It's the ability to monetize attention yeah, that really seems to be one point. of the major features. I of guess the on some level, like that's the ultimate thing. Like the economy at the end of the day is whatever gets built and distributed at some point comes back to somebody focusing on something and either consuming or producing something with their attention. Yeah. It's sort of like one of those ground elements of our society. It's one of those ground elements that, very few people notice because it's so ubiquitous until some sort of technology comes along that makes it obvious, like with, yeah. with the internet. Now we've got algorithms just specialise in getting you addicted to, so they can take your attention. <laughs> yeah, yes. Sell you some shit. Anyway, what, 
Uh, it like the effects of the the printing press probably most most notably were Protestantism coming around, which these authors really seem to trace as fairly directly linked to the geo the mega political changes. What do you reckon? Around the um around the end of feudalism. That's an interesting idea. Because the church was the Catholic Church was outcompeted by Protestantism. And this ties into the chapter at the end of the book about the evolution of different cultures. Because Catholicism was just not cut mm. out for competing for converts in a world of commerce. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. So commerce was becoming more and more important. And Catholicism was so not cut out of it because wars. of the massive taxes it imposed, how slow and bureaucratic it was, and the, the opportunity costs that it imposed because it had so many holy days. It was, there was this view that you get into heaven not through faith but through <laughs> works. And in the view of, at least according to the authors, neither of whom I imagine were Catholic, <laughs> to get into to heaven by works means basically just donating tons of money to yeah. the church, which is very convenient. I've got to say, like, that's got to, you know, don't want to mock Catholics. I'm not going to mock Catholics directly, but I'm just going to say, like, as far as I'm aware, there isn't any canon justification for some of the beliefs that are directly that historically financed the Catholic church, like things around like, like paying to reduce your loved one's time in purgatory and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. However they arose in the Catholic zeitgeist in Europe, like hundreds of years ago, that ended up like basically creating like one of the largest or the contributing to like one of the, the largest wealthiest institutions on the face of the planet. Like, and all you've got to do is go to um, like St. Paul's cathedral and like the Vatican, like that place. St. Peter's cathedral. Sorry. St. Peter's cathedral. Like that place just like my jaw hit the fucking ground when I saw that place. Oh, it is. It's unreal. Just, it's something like out of a goddamn fantasy novel, you know? And a huge part of what financed that, like there are lots of things that finance that, but a huge part of what financed that was like these ideas <laughs> that they talk about in this book. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's so wild too when you see, like, of course, it's when you think about it, it's obvious, but how you can draw, draw that direct through line from an idea to this physical manifestation of the effects of that idea, of the, this, this memeplex that allowed the Catholic Church to accumulate all of this wealth. You can see the physical manifestation of, those of beliefs, that yeah. in St. Yeah, Peter's yeah, yeah. Basilica. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Man, I, I, I mean, I love that place. I think it's incredible. It sounds like a dumb thing to say to people, but it, ideas are really ideas important. Ideas are pretty important. They, they can dramatically change sure things. Ideas are the reason why there's a thing called New York City. <laughs> at the mouth of the Hudson River. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. the ideas are the reason why there's a fleet of satellites beaming internet down on Earth and ideas are the reason why there's a mirror on the surface of the moon. Ideas are pretty important. And yeah. Why there's Bitcoin why in my wallet. Bitcoin in my wallet. Yeah, so like, but then it's, it's interesting because like, I guess one way to put it is history didn't have to be the way that it was. There, I don't think there was like, um, hmm. 
like it it turned out the way that it did because of the ideas that people created and promulgated or enforced or criticized or refused to criticize and so forth and it was really like what we see now like the vatican or whatever um and the sort of things that are harder to see like the institutions those are consequences of the ideas that people created and i think that's just like so it's almost like it's like breathtaking it's it's a stunning fact of human civilization when you actually just sit down and say something as simple as like that oh it's wild and that's one of my favorite things about this book how it's two people trying to draw out a way in which events affect ideas and ideas yeah. affect events and then trying to use that to predict it's the future. A, and I think they, they, I think they, they landed on something really interesting. I think they do a pretty think, good job of you it. You know, they might, I have a suspicion that by the end of my life I will hopefully have come up with, like, an improvement on what they've put forward. But, like, I found it helpful in thinking through things the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So should we go on to the next? So what are we saying? Oh, yeah, Protestantism. So Protestantism, at least in the, in the view of the authors, arose as this form of Christianity that was just better adapted to the increasing commercialization of the world. Because Protestantism, it flipped around that, okay, you get into heaven from works. So in, I'm, I'm far from a theologian, but at least in a lot of Protestant Groups, there's this idea that you get into heaven on faith alone, not through work. So you don't get into heaven because you paid for a new wing of your local church. You get into it because of faith. And so when you're thinking about tax, like the tax burden on an individual, obviously that reduces it because you're no longer having to pay all of these taxes to the Catholic church to get yeah. into heaven because now you have faith, so you get into heaven. Demanded far fewer holy days where you just were not allowed to work. It wasn't that you got a day off work. You were just forbidden from working. Protestantism cut that. Yeah, and assuming... Didn't have the bloated bureaucracy because it's a much more... It's a fundamentally more decentralised mm. approach to Christianity than yeah. Catholicism. Well, that's like local community stuff. Um, yeah. And the Protestants were much more comfortable with using Yeah, way more. And that's super important for capitalism, like... Debt structures are basically like one of the main mechanisms by which we like allocate capital to be, you know, invested in like capital processes and stuff. So like a a a, a society that like hamstrings the financial sector is just like going to have a hard time actually like accumulating capital and developing their economy. Yeah, it's also interesting to the parallel they draw between then and now. So they say. Many merchants in that time were, well, many merchants and Protestants at that time were resented because they were becoming wealthier and wealthier because they were better adapted to the mega political changes taking mm. place than, than not necessarily all members of the, the old regime because some of them also became merchants or Protestants or both, but many didn't. And they, they had a very hard time understanding how how someone who was not of noble birth could be more powerful than them because they they were very much enmeshed in that view that that their nobility just gave them this divine right and this innate ability to be better than all of these plebs and one of the interesting who who were wasting all of their time doing things like trading between cities rather than 
I don't even know what feudal lords did. Probably just just playing Counter Strike all day or something. Yeah, just rather than just playing Counter Strike all day, and not even playing Counter Strike for for a productive end, like like skin farming, <laughs> like what all, all those hustlers today do. So. They were just playing Counter-Strike because they enjoyed the game. <laughs> so uh, one of the interesting things, I suppose, that is kind of a, um, a simplistic way to put it. Wait, I, I was just saying, like, they draw, they draw a parallel between that and today how people who are becoming wealthy from information technology are also resented by particularly people in government and people in accredited professions. And I do think that is a, a growing divide. Yeah, right this divide in political orientation and i do think there is a realignment happening where you've got people in in accredited or government positions versus people in non-accredited positions who tend to be entrepreneurs or low-skilled workers and those two groups seem to be separating away from each other hmm. and they drew that parallel in 97 which i thought was pretty pretty yeah, good it's really interesting isn't it i think they got that I one think, right um, the other thing that i'd like to highlight is um if you think of another axis, it's like um, status versus wealth, and basically, like in a low wealth society, yeah, yeah, like yeah, that's really important. Is really important, and how they don't track, they don't necessarily track. I th- it's particularly in times of transition, they stop yeah, tracking as much, and then once transition settles down again, they start to align. And so, like in hunter gatherer cultures, like everybody's poor. By like socioeconomic, by socio technological idea of, I'm not even going to open up that can of worms. Fuck it. Like hunter gatherers are poor, and agricultural people, agricultural societies are also poor, but less poor. Um, but there's a status within certain parts of the social hierarchy. Um, and then what happened interesting is like there's these status components in like the feudal era era. Um, and they're also harvesting like productivity basically off the surfs. But then one of the interesting things that they highlight in this, uh, part of the book is like the mercantile class. And actually this is a feature that happens quite frequently throughout history. I believe it, it happened in, um, uh, was it in? Is it? Was it in like uh, certain cali- caliphates? Like you'd have like the mercantile class, or essentially down the bottom of the social hierarchy. <laughs> you know, um, and even though they were moving capital around, <laughs> whereas like we think today, like a banker or like a successful entrepreneur or something like that might be like high social status potentially, depending on which part of society you're in, but generally speaking, high social status. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so wealth and status can sort of go hand in hand, or at least if you make a lot of wealth, you can gain status. Um, whereas like that wasn't necessarily the case. But then again, I don't know, maybe you could disagree with that and say that like, well, the Catholic structure, like political structure was wealthy as well. They were just suppressing, competing it was unbelievably they were just suppressing wealthy. competing forms of wealth, maybe. Yeah, I think broadly speaking, it's when there's not too much cultural change going on, I think you do get a convergence of status and wealth. People who are high status tend to be wealthy. 
Um, you can always yeah. find exceptions, but I think that's generally the case. But when circumstances start changing, so I like thinking about things at least in part through a mega political lens. I do think that's a really useful mental model they came up mm. with in this book. When me- the mega politics of things start changing, that's when oftentimes you do see this mm. divide between people who are high status, and that tends to reflect the status and what generated wealth before the transition mm. and people who are newly wealthy but mm. lower status. And those people tend to be people who are representatives of whatever is generating more wealth relative to before but is quite new, so hasn't really had the time to build up around itself status yeah. structures. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. Um... And I guess that's also, it's part of how the these two authors viewed the world as a lot of culture is downstream of these megapolitical changes. And at, to an increasing extent today, downstream of technological changes. So technology changes, you have a group of people who make the most of it, get wealth, and then eventually they are recognised as yeah. high status. At which point there are just lower returns to making use of that technology because more people are making use of it. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. Um, should we move on to the next next, next part? Yeah, because it's also probably, what, like 9pm? Oh, no, I'm going good for time. I'm just... Uh... Just moving along, that's all. I'm I'm feeling okay. I think we can get this done in yeah. like without okay, rushing. Cool. I'll let you know if I'm starting to fade. But I really like this book, so like okay. I'm pretty happy at the moment. <laughs> yeah. This is this is a really, really good book. <laughs> like this book's had a really big impact on me, Jack. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't necessarily know if like see I try to split the way that I think into two two stages when I'm thinking through these sorts of sort of political or sociological ideas. I try to think stage one is explanation, just like what is the world like? And then stage two is, okay, how should I act or whatever um, in response to that explanation? So I've sort of made a pretty like clear, bright, not it's not always a bright line, but like I try to separate out the explanatory phase of my thinking from the normative phase of my thinking. And I think people fall into a trap where they won't engage with an explanation if it disagrees with their normative ideals. So like I could like give this book mm-hmm. to a friend who say like more has more of a socialist bent and they might not even read the book because it's putting forward this perspective, which they won't even want to agree with. But my conjecture is basically like, first of all, start off with, is this even an accurate description of society or not society, but like what's actually happening in the world? Is this like, actually, does this have some explanatory power? And then you might disagree with, well, should the world be like this or should it not? That's a secondary question to whether or not the world is or isn't like this. Like first you've got to get your your like your facts in order before you can actually act properly. And I've found that like I might not say that the yeah, world should yeah. or shouldn't be like this, but I think that the world is increasingly becoming what these people have described. Whether or not I think it's good or bad. Yeah, and also 
because we're now reading it quite a few years after publication, we can examine how how accurate some of their predictions were. And they have got quite a number of things right, which means that I just have greater trust that they'll continue to get yeah, things right. Yeah, and I, I think they also give a mechanism. So it's So with some books... Yes, yes, very importantly. They explain how they got... Whereas their, some books, when I've read them, they're trying to make, um, like, even take Evola. Like, Evola's an interesting one where he'll, like, have this apocalyptic. Well, he offers a mechanism. It's just a mechanism just, just that I nothing. don't think exists. <laughs> Whereas, like, I can see their reasoning in this. Like, they're not yeah. proposing anything supernatural <laughs> or anything like that. They're saying, like, hey, man, technology really interacts with, like, our institutional structures. <laughs> it's pretty important. So, like, you should keep abreast. <laughs> which, which sounds just trivial. But no, it has true. really profound like, implications. Yep, it does. <laughs> like, I guarantee now everybody is using American technology to listen to this podcast. You're using an Android phone. Maybe, maybe it's on a Samsung device and maybe it's South Korean hardware. But it's going to be an Android phone or an iOS phone. They're going to be listening. 80% of our listeners are on Spotify, something like that. And, like, the rest are scraped on Apple or whatever. And so Spotify, I'm pretty sure it's an American company. Correct me if I'm wrong. I might be wrong about it's that. Swedish. Swedish. Okay. So Western, but the vast majority of like the stuff that we're interacting with is American. And if it's not American, it's Western. So it's like, okay. Yeah. Like it's just. And as everyone knows, the beating heart of the West is Australia. <laughs> so it's actually... Specifically Narrow Warren. Yeah, it's narrow Warren. It's a narrow Warren Wangaratta axis, which is where all of the interesting stuff's happening. So my basic shout idea, out to Wangaratta. Shout out to Wang. Um, Lived there for a year. Fun times. Went and visited Jack like once when he was in Wang. No, maybe twice. Man, fire out. Those were the days. Hey, Wang's an interesting place. Wang is an interesting place. Anyway, <laughs> so so my point is basically, I think that. Um, if our audience goes and read reads this book, I think that like it might help them make sense of like some of the changes that we're all being confronted with with this internet era stuff, basically. I think a really valuable part of this book too is when you don't disagree with stuff, it forces you to confront why you don't disagree. And there are parts of this book that I do disagree with. I think they they don't get right, but it does make you think about why you don't think it is the case. Yeah. And that itself is valuable. So would we be onto the death, life and death of the nation state, roughly? I think that's what it would be up to. Yeah. Yep. Let's run through quickly why the nation state came about and then we can discuss why it's dying, which is like, that. that's the prediction part of this book. I always think that people, it's very easy to take things for granted, like the way that your society happens to be. And it's always good to travel. As you know, you've moved out of Australia recently and uh, I'm about to embark on a big adventure. I always love going traveling. And you just see like you don't have, like there's no particular way that people have to live. (laughs) And so like this nation state thing, it's like this didn't exist, you know, like a thousand years ago. It doesn't have, it's not like burnt into the fabric of reality that we have to structure our societies like this. So where did it come from? As usual, with all terrible statist things, came out of France. (laughs) (laughs) 
There are so many. It's also, as the book goes on, I feel like the two authors stop playing at being impartial observers and take more and more and more pot shots at how terrible governments are, how bad welfare is, how bad international aid is. Yeah. How bad? Yeah. It's, it's so funny. They're just hyper-libertarian. They, they increasingly call governments like bandits, <laughs> shakedown experts. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to pay uh, with a protection protection racket. <laughs> just this yeah, is just yeah, they're racketeers. Old man shakes fist at sky for seven hundred pages, <laughs> except it's 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 the government. <laughs> just a cranky old dude, just get angry about his taxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you don't like paying taxes, you're gonna love this book. <laughs> yeah. So they really see the the age of nation states Democracy. as not being the same as the industrial age. Yeah. But being being an inevitable outgrowth of it. So industrialism, this process of they see probably the prototypical industrial process or something emblematic of industrialism is the factory. So you've got yeah. this big centralized building full of very, very expensive equipment. It's very capital intensive. And very importantly, it involves standardized processes of work to produce standard outputs. So this means that an, a highly skilled artisan and just some semi-literate drunk working in a factory on the same production line will produce more or less the same output each day because everything's standardised. There's such division of labour. This creates the, the circumstances within which the nation-state will form because you're getting more money flowing towards lower-skilled people. So more people have a bit of money to throw around. The, the technology of violence of guns is still there. And what this does is it means that a central government can, can fight using large numbers of you know, fairly poorly trained people when compared to knights um, with guns. And the logic of that means that basically whoever can field just more people with more guns is most likely to win a war. So that favours governments having larger and larger territories and larger populations under their control which they can then just throw as trash mobs against their enemies. Yeah, what did they call it? The ability to project and consolidate power. I think that's roughly the terms they use. So, like, yeah, project yeah. power outwards would be, like, obviously, a, you know, the quintessential example of that would be, like, the naval power of the British Empire or now these days, like, the ability of the US to project power out into the world with their, their, yeah. um, their military bases and stuff. But, like... The interesting corollary of that is also the ability to consolidate power internally in the territory that you yeah. control, which I, when I first read it, I was like, oh yeah, I hadn't, like, you know, projecting power outward is kind of obvious, but the consolidation internally of power as well was, and basically it's like the opposite of anarchism. You basically consolidate and, uh, I guess, standardize like the laws and institutions within a jurisdictional region. And that comes from the monopolization of, of like violence within that jurisdiction. Yeah. And so in terms of the megapolitics of this, so where is the return on violence? Is it going up or down? Because you've got all of these very, very capital-intensive industries churning out have returns lots of mass-produced stuff. 
like complex yeah, production process. It really favors it favors a, a high output of violence. Yeah. And the the returns on violence are just going up continuously. <laughs> Guess what? Because as the as the value of of industrial outputs goes up, the value uh, of going uh, in and basically just fucking, stealing other people's stuff goes up as this, well. The, no, it's not in this part of the book. So later on, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so the the returns on military adventures are just going so so far up. They um. The, the subtitle of this chapter that we're sort of like speaking about is democracy and nationalism as resource strategies in the age of violence. So maybe we should talk a little bit about the split between like the, the quintessential example being like socialism or communism, like the USSR really. Yeah. And, and I think in particular the United States. Yeah. They've got this really interesting discussion about how, so in this age, the two big ideologies or the two forms of industrialism that fought each other yeah, both industrial were communism societies. on one hand, yeah, and liberal democratic capitalism on the other hand. And why was it that, that capitalism won out? And they've got a pretty interesting view of why that happened because they say on the face it's of because it- Because God loves freedom, Jack. Besides, yeah, besides <laughs> the obvious theological argument, then- <laughs> You've also got the fact that, so on the face of it, it looks like communism should win. So they say with Bolshevism, because the, the, the Bolshevik states can basically just look at any part of their society and go, yep, that's mine. I'm going to use that to further expand. It should, it should appear that that one should win out. Command and control. Because given that the returns on violence are just going up all the time. What's most important is just to project as much violence outwards as possible so you can get all of these appreciating assets, basically, rather than focusing on efficiency. Because everything that you could be stealing with violence is going up in value. So they would call it magnet. It's more important just to versus. grab as much of it as you can. You don't, you don't worry about cost unless it's absolutely prohibitive. Magnitude versus efficiency. So what's important for these two systems is just to mobilize as much stuff as they can. So why was it that capitalism or capitalist states could leverage more resources than the communist ones can or could, mm. given that the communist ones could notionally just take all of their economy and throw it at their enemies. Yeah. And That's I thought this question. section was really interesting. So basically the idea is you've got to sustain your power projection over time. So it's not really about like, say like the liquid value of like any of the assets in your jurisdiction at any particular point in time. Like really it's about the net cash flows and I like the productivity of the society out of, you know, not just cash flows, obviously, but like the productivity over time. And if you imagine like the way that I visualize it is something along the lines of like, you've got time on the X axis and then you've got like on um, the Y axis, you've got like your productivity um, and then you like plot, you know, your productive output um, over time. And then the area under the curve is like total product production over time. And the state is going to come in and take some chunk of that area under the curve. 
and you could take more or less of the area under the curve proportionally. But what really matters is not the proportion of the area under the curve, but just the total volume of productive output the state takes. And their argument that they're making is basically like the democratic states with capitalism had a total productive output so much greater than like the USSR that even though they were taxing, say, I don't know, 30%, that 30% was still a greater magnitude than, say, taxing 80 or 90 or 100% of the USSR's economy because the USSR basically just had a trash economy. It's complete trash. Um, am I misrepresenting that or is that an okay way to think about it? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. The way I interpreted it was that they said that as you said, the capitalist systems worked out a way to generate more wealth accumulation. And what they did is they basically put the the requisitioning of resources part of the equation in a different spot yeah. to the communist states. So the communist states basically from the get-go said, okay, everything belongs to us. Yeah. That's good. Whereas way to put in it. the capitalist states, the the point of requisition came later in the citizens owned their stuff and could could put it towards productive uses and then the state comes in once once wealth has been generated and takes a portion of it so they delay yeah, of the output yeah they delay the point at which they come in and take part of the output but at the end of the day fundamentally they're still stealing <laughs> yes as as the authors tell you repeatedly taxation is taxation theft. is theft <laughs> so so at the end of the day there's so, it all there's so much about it too <laughs> These Talk about the immorality of taxes. These fucking like scumbag water rats in DC coming along and jacking up your goddamn taxes and using it to blow up brown people in the Middle East, mate. I'm a fucking hell. <laughs> Government's hand in my pocket. You know, yeah, they do. Another social program, another war. We've got a war on drugs, we've got a war on COVID, we've got a war on the Middle East, we've got a war on this thing and that thing. <laughs> more wars, more money. Exactly. I what I I don't. I don't want any more wars. I want. I want support. I want the government to be supporting COVID. To be supporting. Yeah, what, what about getting around drugs? drugs? What about more drugs? More COVID. Yeah. <laughs> more cancer. More cancer. That's what I more want. More poverty. See. No, end the war on poverty by just making more poverty. <laughs> it, no, I want the government to promote poverty. <laughs> we need a government program mailing everyone little little packages full of uranium, uranium that they can eat anthrax. so they can get more cancer. <laughs> Anthrax-laced uranium. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then taxing the shit out of everybody and just impoverishing everyone. And then yeah, not, yeah, not exactly. even, you got not even doing anything with the money, like not even doing anything with like, you know, not building a road or something, just literally setting it on fire. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they just need to spend it in the worst, most wasteful way possible. The government will appoint someone to go down to the Greyhound track every Friday <laughs> and just put, put bets on put, the worst doggies they can doggies, find. Just putting down the federal budget. All right, we're going to put eighty percent on the doggies this year. That's the true blue Australian <laughs> way come, to waste wealth. Elbow comes out, waste like, it on the doggies. Just uh, just had a big win and win big windfall on the doggies this year. That's right. We've got another. 20% on the budget. The next Australian election is Anthony Albanese and Peter Dutton bragging about who can lose more money at, <laughs> on, on the, the doggies, doggies on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Certainly feels like it sometimes. 
So I thought that was... (laughs) (laughs) They complicate the process a little bit more, but it does feel like that at times. It's just like, okay, we're not going to do that directly. We're going to wash it through a giant faceless bureaucracy. (laughs) And then we're going to fucking piss your money against the wall. And then we're going to go to the doggies. Then we're going to go to the doggies. I mean, your money. (laughs) Yeah. um, I really don't like politics. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, the thing is, like... That was actually... That reminds me of a part of this book that I found really interesting, how they were saying that politics in the way that we think of it today is a fairly new phenomenon. Mm, So Yeah, that was a super interesting Aristotle wrote a book whose title is translated as politics, but they said that that... The sense in which that is used was quite different to what it is today. They didn't explicitly define what politics means... When they talked about, the way that I interpreted it was that when they say politics in the sense of the 21st century, well, the 20th century when they wrote it, it's basically this, this constant attention paid to who is in control of the mechanisms in our society, which take in wealth accumulated by citizens and then redistribute that, that obsession with politics. And they said that, that that is also going to die out in the future for reasons that will go over soon. And that the obsession with politics will be regarded as similarly strange to, for example, the Roman obsession with which direction birds flew over the Palatine Hill or something like that. I found that section really it's interesting. It's super interesting. And I, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not like as apocalyptic and pessimistic as these guys but i th- i think that would assuming that that mind space is filled up with something somewhat more generative creative generous etc cetera, etc cetera, that sounds like a good thing have, having less of that in our world um yeah, I, mean, I guess so. I just really hate the poor, so I want welfare to be cut on that basis. Yeah, it would be great if we didn't have any politics so I didn't have to pay any taxes. <laughs> yeah, it would be great. <laughs> so that we didn't have to pay any taxes. So I could sit in like a penthouse just like our friend F. Gardner and just look down my nose at all the, pl- <laughs> all the clubs on the street and just throw my dollar bills at them. Let them eat cake. Exactly. Eat and cake. one one window of my penthouse would always be open. So that I could spit on them. Spit on them and smell their filth. (laughs) (laughs) That's the dream. That's the dream. Set up there with with F. Gardner. To to spit on people poorer than me from a height. (laughs) With F. Gardner and listen to Chief Keith. That's that's where I hope the future goes. (laughs) And stream it on Twitch. (laughs) Spit cam. I'm sure that's not the only spit cam on Twitch, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder what Lord William Reesmog would have thought of Twitch. <laughs> Probably fucking loves it. Filthy old bastard. <laughs> Bafflement. <laughs> I wonder what his son would think of Twitch. Jacob Reesmog should get on Twitch. Wait, is his son like an interesting person? Uh, yeah, J- Jacob Rees-Mogg. I think he was... I'm not sure if he's still Speaker. He's Speaker of Parliament in the UK. Oh, really? Huh. huh. Yeah, watch videos of him. He's got the most hilarious accent. Is he the one who's, like, really funny? Because I was watching um, 
videos of the speaker of the house um and he was just like he had some rip rips on like you know how telling people to shut up and stuff really funny or that might have been a different speaker he's quite he's quite funny no no it's I'd a be different guy to know what his no, dad he think must have been like previous guy or something like there's another another funny like guy anyways i'll look up jacob reed or some other guy so is that his son it's worth it's worth li- yeah, it's worth listening to Jacob Rees Mogg videos just because he speaks in the most absurd way. Okay. It's just hilarious. I'll give it a listen. Such a biz- such such a ridiculous accent. Great, fantastic. So, um, I say in a, a refined, a refined Australian Australian accent. a refined ochre accent. <laughs> <laughs> I've come to terms with the fact that I come from a country where everyone speaks like a yob. <laughs> Oi, no shit, man. Down here in Hobart, people say. I love this. I love this. People know, like, like not kidding or anything. They say cobber. I love it. They say cobber. Oh, cheers, <laughs> cobber. Oh, sorry, cobber. <laughs> just go, yes, I fucking, I'm about this. I'm about this cobber. Call me cobber. I've arrived. I've arrived. I'm home. <laughs> I got bumped by a guy. He's like, oh, sorry, cobber. <laughs> no worries, mate. <laughs> So good. <laughs> it is true fucking blue. That's what it is. <laughs> Aussie battlers. <laughs> true blue Aussie battlers. <laughs> Levi, Aussie battler. So <laughs> what I think of when I think of Aussie battler is <laughs> Levi sitting on his fucking computer <laughs> all day. Just, just playing In, Information age, Aussie battler. <laughs> haven't, haven't done a hard <laughs> day working your fucking life, mate. <laughs> Probably. Probably. <laughs> anyway, nation My fingers states. are sore from all this keyboarding I do. <laughs> <laughs> you've got you've got those fingertip calluses that just women love because it means that a man's working hard. <laughs> just just imagine what I can do with my fingers. I have so much dexterity. Look at that keyboard warrior with his overdeveloped forearms <laughs> from just pounding keys all day. <laughs> Imagine what those big, strong hands could do to me. <laughs> oh, so funny. Um, okay, so... Um, Got carpal tunnel in both wrists. Oh, man, I genuinely need to get, like, workers, workers insurance of some sort, like, in case I get, like, RSI or something in my hands. From masturbation. <laughs> and, and from working at a keyboard. <laughs> So is there any? That's all you do. <laughs> That's what I get paid to do. I don't even have to film it. I just have to jerk off. <laughs> That's literally my job. I just jerk off. I just get paid to jerk off. <laughs> For no higher purpose. That is paid to do it. <laughs> it's just one of those strange bullshit games that's, that's come up Graves in most corporate bureaucracies. <laughs> bullshit jobs. Yeah, this is our in-house masturbator. <laughs> We used to outsource, but we found it's just cheaper to have someone in the house. <laughs> so, um, was there anything else to okay. say much about <laughs> so, uh, the death of the nation state? Oh, yeah. So, uh, how does so it we'll die? About why I guess, it, yeah, it another reason why it came it came about is because factories, or more broadly, industrial processes, are easy to tax because they tend to be centered in one yeah, place. Yeah, you pluck a factory down, and the the owners of factories can't exactly get up and leave because. They've invested so much money into building up a factory or some other Unless industrial you dematerialize your wealth and turn it into fucking put it on a blockchain. Then you can walk in <laughs> your fucking head. Yeah. So 
They also said that democracy is really good for getting wealth for nation states to project power outwards because basically you're getting people to decide what to do with other people's money and people tend to be much more generous with other people's money. These people also don't seem to like democracy very much. Uh, quite a few points in this book, they talk about how it's a terrible system. No, there's a follow-up book to this I want to read, which is another weird Bitcoin book, which is called Democracy, the God That Failed by Franz Hermann Hopp, Hopper, who apparently, like... I think you've brought, you've brought I, it up most episodes I, you that we've know, done. I've, I've read, I'm a big fan of Popper, as I've mentioned, on the, and his open society, and he really advocates for democracy. And so I, you know, I'm also really into Bitcoin. And so like reading a, a book that other Bitcoiners seem to like that is like actively criticizing democracy by an Austrian economist would be like a really interesting read for me. <laughs> I think that'd just be weird because I I feel like I would be going into that book like being like really disagreeing, <laughs> but also I fucking love Bitcoin. So <laughs> if so it could go either way. It could go either way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Next minute, Levi's bombed Parliament. <laughs> it was like a, a missile that's got like a fucking Bitcoin logo on it or something. Your defense in court is you just keep saying that you like Bitcoin. <laughs> no, I, do, I, I, I like it's Bitcoin. It's freedom money. From from that first principle, my actions should follow. <laughs> that should be obvious why I did what I did. <laughs> <laughs> you get acquitted. Like, yeah, fair enough, mate. <laughs> you get acquitted and then voted in to the smoldering ruin <laughs> that was this actually like. Crypto nukes Queensland like emerges like a phoenix out of the ashes of, of yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> Vote one Levi crypto nukes Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that I liked in the the discussion of nat- of the of the nation state was they discuss all of these ways that basically states format the people within their borders to make them more effective citizens or subjects of the state so you've got nationalism which makes people identify really strongly with a nation state as opposed to for example a land of their ancestors or something like that no people identify with the nation state with the administrative apparatus that currently tends to that block of land that they live in yeah also makes them speak the same language and a standardised form of that language. Like the French. So they talk about how after the French Revolution, it was a really big problem because people outside of Paris basically just didn't speak the same French yeah. as the people in Paris, just totally so different languages. It. And how it was a big project of theirs to format the rest of France, to make them all speak the Parisian form of French so that they could be more easily mobilised to fight wars against other groups. I thought that was really interesting. And that did happen all through Europe. Yeah. How there, there were these linguistic nationalistic movements that sought to standardise the also language. Also happened in the colonies. And then impose that standardised language on everyone else. It happened in the colonies as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah to a, Yeah. A much, an even more dramatic extent. Yeah. How it is that it's that formatting to make people easier to control, which is why I'm going to make up my own language now. French. 
so that I can't be controlled. Oh, you have your own language and you just like Bahasa. It's like yeah. Bahasa 2. I'm going to start speaking. Oh, what was, what was the programming language? An NL base. NL base. The, um, in, in, the fucking fruitcakes in Heaven's Gate spoke. <laughs> I'm going to start speaking in NL base. Yeah, so, um, uh, so, and then why does it die? Well, here's, here's the thing. Like, you and I, Jack, and everybody listening to this goddamn podcast right now, um, if you're, you know, assuming that you're working, like, obviously, if you're a kid and you're not, like, I don't know, if you're, if you're like, you know, if you're stealing copper, f- <laughs> like one member of the Discord is. Fundamentally, Jack, there's uh, there's two classes in any society. There's net packs tayers, payers, and net tax consumers. <laughs> you can simplify the world into this nice binary category. I love the 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 parts of the book where they really, really indulge in their obviously <laughs> deepest, most animal dislikes. Are the best yeah, parts of the book, the end. or the most fun parts. So Sorry, go on. It's just, you bring this up. Just how much tax benefit <laughs> you have received over your life versus how much tax uh, you've paid over the course of your life? You can figure out. You know which group you're in. Levi knows what I'm. Fucking. I'm not criticizing anybody. You know, I've only just finished university, man. I've just, I've been a very fucking high tax consumer motherfucker. Get the fuck out, parasites. <laughs> For like all of my 20s. <laughs> Getting a fucking education of ta- taxpayers' tits. <laughs> but their basic point is, all right. And, you know, like, okay, <laughs> just stop being a fucking idiot. Like, they do have a point. Yeah, okay, uh, all the shit that the government pays for, it's got to come from somewhere, right? And it's either going to come from taxes directly or through inflation as they destroy the currency. Um, so that's, that's like where it comes from. So fucking there's cash cows, goddamn taxpayers fucking paying these goddamn government cronies. And at the end of the day, they got to get milked so we can pay the politicians fucking salaries, right? So that's all the point that fucking goddamn listeners don't know this, but we just had a bunch of mic issues and now Levi's like, bleh. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, that's high it. taxation. So, okay, that is high taxation issues because we've got shitty fucking internet in Australia and really like, oh, I'm pretty sure sucks. like Azerbaijan has better internet than us. No, not Azerbaijan, like Uzbekistan and shit. We're like 60th in the world for internet internet speeds. It's bullshit. So anyways, um, why does that matter? Why does this like net taxpayer versus net tax consumer issue matter? Well, because like, <clears throat> here's the thing. If all of the new wealth generation becomes digital, right? And especially if the information elite are able to create their wealth online, work anywhere, decouple their economic productivity from their physical bodies and basically like generate wealth through projecting their minds onto computers and into robots. Then it creates this like massive disconnect between like the revenue source to pay for uh, the government's uh, expenditures and uh, like the mechanism by which they access that wealth, which would be like, you know, income taxes. Well, it's like, well, what if you're earning your income um, completely anonymously using internet native digital currency that is, you know, like you can't tell 
how the person got it, how much they got, all these sorts of issues. And then also the person can just like up and leave your jurisdiction because their wealth is digital. And it's like, all right, yeah. well, you guys are taxing me too heavy, so I'm just going to go to a different jurisdiction. So you have to think about like digital tax, con- like digital capital controls and all that. So the death of the nation state is, well, basically ramping up um, national expenditures, welfare, I know pensions, that sort of stuff. And then the information elite, the people who would be expected to have paid for those expenses a hundred years ago, like the top echelon of society are no longer coupled physically to the jurisdiction that they would have been like with factories and stuff, sitting ducks for taxation. Well, now they can just like up and leave. And now you have these massive bureaucracies with huge outlays and they don't have a cash cow to support that outlay. Yeah, yeah, that's the basic model for how they see the nation state dying. And I don't think, I think that's actually a pretty reasonable model. It should give you pause. So, if, you're, if you're doing the Australian national budget, you should really think that one through. If there's anybody listening to the show who's in the RBA, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, because as far as I'm aware, Satoshi Nakamoto right now is worth something like 40 billion US dollars, and by the end of hyper Bitcoinization, he could be a trillionaire, and nobody knows who the fuck he is. Yeah, well, the thing with 21 million is it's hard to divide by, or it's it's infinity divided by 21 million. Which really, so he's an infinity air. Yeah, yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah, but that's so got to give people pause, right? Nation states are becoming, as the Catholic Church did towards the end of feudalism, increasingly inefficient. So they, they are at the same time, they, they appear to people to be money-grubbing, just constantly asking for more money and asking for more money in increasingly coercive ways. But also seemingly always bankrupt they never seem to have enough money for all of the things they keep promising to <laughs> also they kind of like an ice addict always needs another fucking hit always needs more so money. also they say of democracy one of the reasons why they don't like democracy is they say that people who can who, who are net consumers tend to have greater voting power than people who are net contributors and as such they will always just keep voting for policies or voting for people who promise policies that will just redistribute more wealth to them without yep. any sort of any sort of consideration for where that money comes from. Yeah. And yeah, as you said, you're eventually going to get if not all then a large number of people who are the net producers in society will become mobile enough that they'll just leave. And, and here's the issue, right, is that, and they make this point in this book, but everybody fucking knows this. Well, maybe they don't, but like this thing called Pareto distribution or a power law, like, you know, the classic is like, oh, you know, 1% of Americans own half the wealth or some shit. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But that, what does that mean? It means that all you need is 1% of the fucking population to leave and you'll bankrupt the country. Or, you know, like, that's wealth, so maybe it's not a good... Maybe you'd want to look at, like, actual, like, income. So something like, mm-hmm. in Australia, something like 15% of the country foots half the... Something like 30... Is it, like, 50% of the Australian income taxes paid by, like, 10% of the population? So it's like, okay, so it's not the case that you need 80% of the population or 50% of the population to get pissed off. You actually only need a small number of people 
relatively speaking, to get pissed off and go, all right, well, I'm leaving. And they had this issue in, yeah. in like the USSR, in the early like USSR, like when they um, had the Soviets, like the, the, like, the, like the regional Soviet councils and stuff. They go and like kill all the farmers. They didn't have to kill all the farmers in a community. They'd only have to kill like the three most productive farmers and you'd wipe out like 50% of the productive output of the entire community because it's Pareto, productivity is Pareto distributed. Yeah, yeah. So for the authors, modern welfare states can only exist so long as they can, can, they can coerce their wealthiest and most productive citizens into giving them large amounts of money, which they then redistribute. But this, this doesn't work so well anymore. They, they basically said but by the early 2000s. The nation states. Yeah, they were, were a bit optimistic apart. about that one. Yeah, they were pretty. Well, no, it depends but... what you mean by early two thousands. Yeah, do they yeah. mean so? We're still in the first half. This of the side 2000s. of the twenty fifty mark. Mm. I will. I think actually, the leaders in this, in what they're describing, are multinational corporations rather than individuals. So, yeah, something like Amazon does what the authors of this book said that sovereign individuals will be doing, where they basically just York, shop right? around for different jurisdictions globally to get the best tax rate they can get. Even when they talk about opening a new, um, a new factory or a new distribution center, they'll often shop between different, uh, ju- different states or cities within a country to see which state can give them the best sweetheart deal, and then they'll go yeah. with that one. So which is like, what again, the authors, like to the what rationality the thing. describing, actually, I think is happening. It's just with multinational corporations and, and it'll probably become the case with individuals too i imagine so all they're doing is like saying that this this trend will then go down in a weird way like go down market yeah yeah from trillion dollar companies to billion dollar individuals and well, yeah, but even keep going you don't even necessarily have to be obscure podcasters from australia yeah, <laughs> we can dream, Jack. Pretty um, fucking far down the pecking order. <laughs> pretty fucking far. I reckon, like, the nation state will have truly collapsed before it gets to that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd say we're definitely trapped inside it. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty fucked. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, like, it's it's an interesting point because you have to think, like, you know, like, again, this is like the normative versus explanatory thing. Like, you might agree or disagree with whether or not there should be or shouldn't be taxation or given that there's taxation, what it should or shouldn't be spent on. But that's kind of beside the point. Like, what these guys are saying is, like, the economic reality of it is that this shit is Pareto distributed and the people who are the wealthiest are in, in increasingly becoming the sort of people who can have, who have digital wealth. The wealth is coming from the machines on the internet and from the cryptocurrencies and from that sort of stuff. And so if those people have the mobility and you basically push them too far, what's the classic saying in the Bitcoin community? Oh, my Bitcoin? I lost it in a boating accident. Sorry, it's gone. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. It's like, okay, somebody might be willing to pay. (laughs) My Michael Saylor reference. Um, Somebody might be willing to pay like a Bitcoiner or whoever, whatever their form of wealth. Like they might be willing to pay a certain amount of tax to live in a good jurisdiction, a Western country, say like maybe if they're American in America, in Australia, in Australia. If they're Australian, then in Australia. 
they might be willing to, but everybody's going to have a number where they start thinking, all right, this is, this is ridiculous. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up, bring up Bitcoin too, because initially they talk about in this book that mobility is going to be coming from the fact that these information elite are able to work from anywhere using technology. And then they say later, you're going to get all of these private currencies like Hayek predicted. Yeah. And some of them will be cyber currencies. Yeah. And like, because they, these two love gold. They said cyber currency is going to be backed by gold, which is, I, th- I quote, the ultimate form of liquidity. Yeah, they fucked that They one. really like gold. Yeah. Although when I, he, he's, he's turned his tune on that one, when he, I saw the interview with him and, um, and Robert Breedlove from What Is Money, like he's, he, I think he's dropped the gold stuck the stuff on the gold. Mm, mm. He's one of the people who, um, you know, because I've been listening to a lot of gold versus Bitcoin debates recently. <laughs> of course you know. Because I'm interested in it. <laughs> and I, I'm just interested in <laughs> And I'm just really interested in like, well, the gold people and the Bitcoin people both have like basically an ax to grind about inflation essentially and about like the collapse of the currencies. And you'd think like the gold people would have seen Bitcoin and been like, oh, yeah, let's get on board of that. But actually, that's not the case. Actually, the gold people really hate a lot of them really hate Bitcoin. Mm, Interesting. Whereas like um, this guy uh, was it like uh, whichever one of them. Yeah, yeah. Dale Davidson. Like he was like he he just seemed totally on board with Bitcoin, which was interesting. Yeah. And that's. So with this, they call it cyber money, but with the cryptocurrencies, another way that states will go bankrupt is because not only are you having the wealthiest citizens moving out of whichever jurisdiction is trying to tax them too much, they're also going to be putting their wealth, so their assets, into a place that governments can't reach. <laughs> yeah, and like a globally distributed and also, energy network. Yeah, and that also has the effect that governments aren't able to indirectly tax through inflation. So it, it removes that ability, and it removes the ability if there are enough of these currencies from all governments, because people can just move their currencies around depending yeah. on which government is inflating and which isn't. I think or one they just thing put it into a completely non-governmental currency. Yeah, which is awesome. A non-sovereign currency is just amazing. So, like, one of the things I didn't talk about, which... I've sort of just gotten my head around recently is like, I think people haven't like, people don't understand our, our, our monetary system. Like people don't, we don't live under a fiat system, Jack. It's more complex than that. We live under a fiat debt system. Like the thing that's mm-hmm. expanding the monetary supply is the fact that there's no distinction between the credit layer of the money and like the base layer of the money. And so the way that the government introduces new money into circulation is through like credit expansion. That's part of the mechanism. Um, and like, that's a whole conversation It's a short story is like, <clears throat> there's no meaningful distinction between credit and quote unquote money. And so credit expansion causes inflation as well. It's not just like M1 versus M0 money. It's also M2 and M3, all these different classes of money. They're all expanding. And, um, one of the things that you can do and everybody does this. Everybody does this. Everybody gets home loans, right? And what they're doing is they're mm-hmm. short the currency 
that's what I realized recently is everybody in Australia and America and stuff who are getting these home loans, whether it's their first home loan or whether it's like, you know, like they're buying an investment property and they're negative gearing it or whatever, everybody's shorting the fucking currency and going into like a hard asset. And what I think mm. could really pop off this so for, entire- for listeners, when you say shorting the currency, you mean getting some sort of wealth, getting, basically getting a- a hard asset, like a house. By taking on debt. Yeah. In in return for debt in a currency that they expect is that not going to be worth as much. Yeah, that is collapsing. If you take out a 30-year loan and you're estimating, oh, well, the currency is inflating by, well, CPI says 2 to 3, but CPI is bullshit if you set a 5% in a country like Australia. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you say, maybe you average it out at 7%. Then it's collapsing over the course of 30 years. You're going to halve it three times at 7% expansion rate, right? So that's 12%, right? There's three halvings. There's 12% of the purchasing power in 30 years' time. So the fucking currency is collapsing. The currency has been collapsing our entire lives. It's just, it's in free, it's in, it's in slow motion collapse. And so everybody is short the currency because they're taking on debt in the currency to buy the hard asset that they know is going to increase their equity in their, their home is going to increase nominally against the currency plus the demand for the house to get out of the currency, right? There's this like positive feedback loop on the market. Well, the thing is, what will happen if people start realizing that like M- Michael Saylor did, you know what Michael Saylor fucking did? This is why he's head of, ahead of the game. He took out billions of dollars of debt <laughs> to buy Bitcoin. He took out like $2 billion of debt to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> He's shorting the currency. What happens when more and more institutions start shorting the currency? Like this is the thing that people haven't like sat down and like spent hundreds of hours of thinking about like this shit. This is like a really crazy situation where we haven't even started seeing the beginning of this fucking Bitcoin shit. He's just the first person to do it. And that's just one company of like hundreds of billion dollar companies in the US that could start playing this financial engineering game to basically get cheap, cheap debt, cheap corporate debt to buy Bitcoin. It's a bold move. It's a fucking gigachad move. <laughs> the guy owns 150,000 Bitcoin. Jeez. Anyways, this was just going to be a so, Bitcoin episode as soon as like. <laughs> so one thing that nation states will do to try to, not just nation states, but people who are quite dedicated to nation states and who who are better off under a nation state than otherwise will do in response to this will be to mount a nationalist backlash because governments and government employees won't like this process of people just leaving if they're being overtaxed and not getting much in return for their tax. So getting what they regard as low quality services in return for, for their money, low quality security in return for their, their tax bills. These people leave, so you'll get government employees disliking these people. You'll get people who receive a lot of welfare disliking these people. You'll get people from s- sort of region-locked accreditation professions. So, mm. for example, lawyers uh, Dentists, who will, maybe. will dislike these sort of people who are just leaving. And there'll be... The authors predict that there'd be a violent backlash, not necessarily actually from 
they call them homeless paupers, but instead from displaced workers who formerly enjoyed middle-class incomes and status. That's mm. going to be the, the epicenter of this violent backlash mm. against technology. It'll be anti-globalism anti and anti-cosmopolitan, mm. anti-tech backlash. But the thing is, at least in the view of these two authors, that backlash is, like, it can cause a lot of misery and can really ruin individual lives, but it's not going to stop the process because the mega, the mega politics of the process are already underway. You've already got this technological change which allows people to move, and you, you can't stop that now that it's in play. That genie's out of the bottle. It's interesting. So the society that they envisage will ultimately be this patchwork of much smaller sovereignties than you currently have. Because scale won't be nearly as important as it was formerly, and it might actually be a negative for some sort of sovereignty to be too large. So because the logic of violence will change, the, return on, the returns on violence will go down, and they see them as currently going down, because people will be able to put their wealth into digital assets, put them in cyberspace, where it's, it's much harder to get them than it is to, for example, seize a factory. So because, because defensive technologies have increased in quality and dropped in cost, there's just less of an incentive for mass centralised organised violence. That sort of violence will get more expensive. And as nation-states, for example, as in the author's view, the, the greatest examples of centralised violence and looting, their revenue stream is going to be cut as well. So in addition to having to pay more to get money out of people, they're going to have less money to do that with. So organisations of that scale will collapse. So you'll just get all of these small sovereignties who will be trying their hardest to attract people almost as customers for their sovereignty services. And within these, these micro-sovereignties, which could take the form of, for example, nation-states, or even distributed... Oh, like city-states. Yeah. You can get city-states, which or would be geographically states. located, or you could get network-states. Like what Balaji Which are these... Would, proposes. Yeah, these sort of overlapping sovereignties. So one person might be subscribed to a certain network state and their next door neighbor might be subscribed to a different one and they might operate under different rules be protected by different private security services <laughs> yeah full-blown like like anarch anarchism in a weird like contractual anarchism or something like that yeah or like uh obviously seafaring <laughs> mm-hmm and, yeah, so go know, full like, Bronze Age mindset. <laughs> I like. I don't know if I can see a clear path forward to any particular socio-political configuration. I've been reading this book called Free City States, um, which is basically an exploration of ways that you could do non, like, how would you put it, like, jurisdictions kind of without a nation state sort of thing. And it's an interesting book, but thus far I still haven't seen anything that makes sense. There are a lot of problems. So one thing, so I guess, I guess their model of lots and lots of different states next to each other can accommodate this. 
while there will be an increasing number of things which only exist on the internet, you still need, for example, manufacturing to make computers or to mine resources to make computers with or to build houses and things like that. Those are all quite physical pursuits. Yeah, and they're not pursuits actually that you can just materialize our mind. Just move. <laughs> yeah. From our body. But until that day, yeah, we've got to have some part of our life in the physical so world. So I guess that you, you could have much more repressive regimes in places that, that are based around, for example, mining. So, mm. I don't know, BHP Billiton, the, the state of BHP Billiton might be in Western Australia around mining sites and you get people who go there to work and are subject to the, the rules set by the BHP Billiton <laughs> Well, that would be like the corporate dystopia put forward by yeah. Stevenson and Snow Crash. Yeah. You have like corporate yeah. sovereignties. <laughs> and you've got, you've got much nicer places where if you're very wealthy and you make all, your, all of your money from, from a very respected podcast, <laughs> you can go and live in the nice places and import like the Bahamas, microprocessors or whatever <laughs> from the dystopian BHP police state. Caribbean Rhythms with Jack Levi and Bronze Caribbean Rhythms with Jack and Levi. <laughs> Narrow Warren ry- Rhythms with Jack and Levi. <laughs> Narrow Warren Rhythms. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's, that's one way that it could happen. Because th- the authors don't say that the world is going to be free everywhere. There'll probably be some pretty bad small sovereignties. Yeah, and I yeah, anticipate probably. those yeah, ones are probably, is not on a good track those would probably right grow up in places where the way to make wealth is not something that you can move away so easily, so you're much more easily coerced. Mm. So electricity generation, I expect you would probably have fairly repressive regimes around that. Yeah. Say around a nuclear plant, you'd have, you might have a much tougher state or ruling group. Yeah. And then wealthy people can, who can move around much more easily will be treated much more nicely. Like if you strap a nuke to yourself and, like... Yeah, exactly. If, if you get a nuke surgically implanted in into your abdomen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so fucking... Just a little one. Just, yeah, just a little level a few city blocks. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. still 